Hey gang, Overby here. This episode of Authorized sees the brief return of the author biography, and I just wanted to slap a disclaimer on the front to say that we are not professional researchers or journalists, and so if any of this information is imprecise or incorrect, uh, we have gathered it from secondary online sources, and we would love to have you reach out and let us know if we got anything wrong. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we disastrously discuss the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are a mix between Hollywood melodrama and passionate, terrified environmental essay. Weaving scientific statistics, projections, and admonishments into a film's silly, manufactured conflicts, these books forefront the story's real protagonist the planet to which we have knowingly laid waste. While the dialogue and interiority of the characters may ring somewhat tinny and trite, the passages chronicling the decay and future of Earth attempt a poeticism that has a mesmerizing quality. Novelizations succeed because they are penned by a true believer. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. And I'm Hannah Blackman. The Day After Tomorrow is a 2004 disaster film directed by Master of Disasters, Roland Emmerich. <laughs> He's good at them. It follows the, the whole moon family. Fell. What if the moon fell? What if a geostorm, etc.? The Master of Ian's stuck in a rut. I mean, has this guy <laughs> ever made a single movie that isn't global disaster? Uh, Godzilla? Which is a different, not global, but a disaster. You almost said, which is a different kind of global disaster. I did. Hey, he also directed (laughs) Midway, which is not exactly a disaster movie. And Stargate, which is not on the planet. So there's that. And the movie Anonymous, which is just a disaster because it sucks dick. Terrible film. Wow. I don't know about that one. Um, it's about like what if Shakespeare was not Shakespeare and it fucking blows so bad. Well, that's a, that's a, 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 despite its quality, that's the argument. That sounds so different from a disaster film. Yeah. Well, there you go. He's made a couple and they suck. And now he's back in his wheelhouse, the disaster movie. So the day after tomorrow uh, follows <laughs> the Hall family, devout believers in science, medicine, and the perseverance of human benevolence as they are geographically separated by the dawn of a new ice age. As Jack Hall treks across the barren tundra of the East Coast to find his teenage son, Sam, Sam struggles to keep himself and his friends and five other people alive in the icy tomb (laughs) of formerly New York City. But their valiant efforts may be for naught. Can the politicians who caused this climate catastrophe through their apathy bury their hubris and transform into humbler leaders? Or will humanity deny the evidence of its eyes until those eyes freeze over in a series of very unpleasant ways? 
Will this ice age be humanity's intermission or its final bow? Nice job, Andrew. Good. Thank good you summary. so much. I got laid off. I've got a lot of time. You're doing great. And yet I clicked into this four minutes before we started and you were still writing it. Okay. In my defense, <laughs> I think I was changing uh, the last line of this intro you're about to read from the novelization was released to the novelization of the day after tomorrow Yeah, I'm just teasing you, baby. All right. I'm just, I'm just joking. I love you. The novelization of The Day After Tomorrow was written by Whitley Strieber, based on a story by Roland Emmerich and a screenplay by Roland Emmerich and Jeffrey Nachmanoff. The story and screenplay are based off of the nonfiction environmental book The Coming Global Superstorm by Art Bell and the novelizationist himself, Whitley Strieber. Strieber. I don't remember how I said it the first time. The novelization of The Day After Tomorrow was released by Pocket Books in 2004. Our guest today, a writer a producer, a director, based in Brooklyn, with a short film soon to come out called I Broke Them. Look for that in fall 2023. And also with a pilot, which I must assume is called Have a Great Summer, uh, even though it is abbreviated as HAGS, because I remember being in middle school, which is currently a top 20 pilot on the blacklist. Lizzie Bryce, how are you doing today? Hello, I'm doing so great. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, it is based on Have a Great Summer, but it is a horror pilot about sea hags, so it's sort of like a double play. Um, but you were very right. Have a great summer. Oh my God, that's <laughs> it was both. It was both, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I ruled it out. I was like, I, I figured out the code here and I need to flaunt my smartness, but it was no, a level it smarter than I even <laughs> thought. No, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to talk about this movie. Like when I saw this was on the table, I grabbed it. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Lizzie, starting with that, what is your relationship to this film, The Day After Tomorrow? Uh, when did you first see it and what were your feelings about it? Yeah, oh my gosh. Well, I think that The Day After Tomorrow is probably the movie I've watched the most on like TBS during the day. <laughs> um, I can't not watch it when it's on TV. Like any time that you start, I will just like, yeah, I have 20 minutes. Why? What am I doing? Um, I don't think I saw it in theaters, uh, but I have maybe seen it like 100 times since. And um, I think it's sort of a fascinating, I mean, it's this like big budget movie that was created in 2004 about climate change which I think is kind of fascinating and I think it's a great example of like people saying you didn't you can't say you didn't know because we literally had like Jake Gyllenhaal making 500 million dollars telling people <laughs> that climate change was real um I also uh as a New Yorker I was like super excited to talk about it because obviously it takes place in New York in the New York Public Library a, a lot of it um, and so that was always really exciting to me. My family is from Brooklyn originally. Um, and so I was obsessed with New York and it was like a fun way to sort of like, you know, be, be in that library with all of them. Um, so yeah, I don't have like a super direct relationship with it other than I will watch it if it's on during the daytime. I mean, you Only don't have a super direct though, relationship with it, but you watched it 500 times. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I quake at at the idea of what a super direct relationship to a movie is to you <laughs> i mean yeah I, I i have i have ones that i'm like emotionally involved in i think i'm not emotionally involved in this but i will yes <laughs> I, I do think it's always a pleasure to watch hannah i stepped on you pretty bad what were you gonna say i was just making a joke great and was it good is it worth <laughs> it was good rehashing? i heard it I laughed. Thank you, Lizzie. Yeah. I don't know if it's worth repeating. <laughs> Great. I'm the only one who doesn't get to hear the joke. Love, yep. love putting this podcast together. 
You can hear the joke when you play back the audio when you edit it, because that's what you do. That's true. That's true. I I might make Marco do it. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of uh, how eerie it feels that this film forefronts uh, climate catastrophe in 2004, and here we are in 2023, still having these arguments, uh, it it is crazy, or it was crazy for me rewatching this movie, to realize how much less political this topic felt 20 years ago. I mean, I understand I was younger, I was engaging in politics less, but it seemed like in in the aughts, as we've come to call them, there wasn't so much, it's not even real, it's not going to happen. It was more a discussion of, uh, this is sensationalism, The you know, a, a film like The Day After Tomorrow, this is, this is too severe. It was crazy to look back on it and go, we're now at a place where people are fully, that's not happening, that's not real. And I had the same reaction sort of you were hinting at there, Lizzie, which is, I I thought, how the fuck did we get to this point, given that Jake Gyllenhaal was screaming (laughs) it from the mountain for a truckload of money? And Dennis Quaid, who is now a nut job. (laughs) Maybe he always was, but he made this movie. Yeah, I mean, I will say to that, I do remember this movie being really political when it came out, and there are a lot of reviews that are like, oh, you know, like, Democrats paid for this movie because they want people to be scared of climate change. So it was definitely controversial when it came out. Um, But I do think it's a, you know, it was so, you can't pretend people haven't been talking about this for over 20 years. It's like, it was, (laughs) you know, front page news 20 years ago. Um, But yeah, I do, I do think, and it's funny because one of the big critiques of it too is that the science is wrong. Like I saw something online where a scientist was like, I'm glad people are talking about climate change, but this gets like an F as far as like how this would actually happen. Um, so it is definitely the Hollywood version of climate change. Um, but I think, yeah, the fact that it, it probably taught a lot of people what climate change is in the first place is for me a win. Lizzie, what's your relationship to novelizations? You read a bunch <laughs> of them? You read any of them ever? This is such a fun question. I I, I don't really read them. Um, I do think I read the one for Revenge of the Sith because <laughs> I was Hell listening yeah. to that episode, which is a very good novelization. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be so fun. <laughs> and then <laughs> reading this one, I feel like the quality is like slightly different, uh, which we could talk about. <laughs> Um, I am very curious. I mean, it's for me fun that like, if you love a movie, do you want to spend more time in that world and like digging deeper into relationships and thought process? And like, um, I like the idea of novelizations. But honestly, this is one of the the first ones I've read. (laughs) I'm sure that if we looked at the numbers, which is impossible to do, you know, we're a small podcast. But at this point, we have so many episodes. It'd be tens of thousands of listens. How many people actually went and picked up a book afterward? Seven. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's crazy to me i've never i've never heard someone say that to me that they that they read it because they listened to the episode how did you find just to take a total detour revenge of the sith to be after we hyped it up so much oh well so no i think when i listened to it i realized i had read it before i apologize if i oh fuck <laughs> fuck i feel like i just really let you down sorry andrew that number dropped to zero <laughs> she was all seven. No, I definitely, I read it when the movie came out. Uh, but I do remember Revenge of the Sith being really great. And like, just a really good example of like how you could use a novelization to like enhance story and give backstory, um, which this book does not do. 
<laughs> it does some things, though. It does some things, uh, especially about women. It's very skeptical. I'm very skeptical of <laughs> the tone towards women in this book. Um, mm. But it is it is always fun to to read, especially like an action not an action movie too. To read the action is always fun. Lizzie, you didn't like the part of the book where <laughs> Sam thought to himself, "Now that a global catastrophe has struck, I will be marrying this woman." <laughs> And really didn't consult her about it. That part was actually not nearly as bad to me as like Jack being like, oh, my boy's got a girl. I bet she's a good looker too. <laughs> I was like, oh no, um, patriarchy comes for us all. Uh, but no, I th- there's, there's definitely some lines. And also the two women in this book are called Laura and Lucy, which is like almost interchangeable <laughs> um, uh, naming. It uh, feels like you could have like gone to a different letter. Um, but yeah, no, it's... it's I, I think the action in this is very fun, but there, I'm sure you guys felt it too. There were some moments where I was just like, ooh, that's context I didn't want. Mm-hmm. Have, have any of you read on the naming issue, have any of you read the, the first uh, Hannibal book, Red Dragon? Mm-hmm. Okay. I- Will Graham's adopted, not adopted, stepson. His name is Will. <laughs> Why? You know, it's... <laughs> You go, to, you go to elementary school and you're like, that's Laura, that's Laura B and that's Laura G. That's Laura four, you know, like that's how it works in the world. You are in screenwriting. You're really not supposed to do this because it's very confusing <laughs> for the audience. So like they often tell you in like screenwriting 101, like pick a different letter. You know, if there's already a mark, don't make a mic, make a, a Jonathan or something that's just like easier to differentiate. I get um, it, but I appreciate <laughs> A little realism. Yeah. Sometimes people just have the same name. And I like that for you. The realism is not climate change. It's naming. Uh, climate change also real. <laughs> Hannah, I invite you to revisit Thomas Harris's Red Dragon, a uh-huh. book in which not only do stepfather and stepson have the same name, but there's not a single cheeky, self-aware, humorous line. It's crazy that my stepson has the same name. Never addressed. Just... My name is Will, and I was hanging out with Little Will. A very common name. <laughs> anyway. This is like how fun it is in like Fast and Furious 9 and 10, where they're like, this little boy's name is Brian, but we won't call him Brian because it's confusing <laughs> to the audience. So his name is now <laughs> Little B. I have had a really fun time just hearing about Fast 10. I won't go see it. Okay. Lizzie. Go ahead and 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 lead us into the book here with what it sounds like is a is a differing opinion from ours. So I want to set you up first and then knock you down. <laughs> what did you mean by the book doesn't really iterate on the movie in the ways that you wanted? Oh, interesting. And yes, I appreciate the opportunity to um <laughs> defend my position. Walk into my trap? Yes, I would love to. Um Yeah, I think uh, for me, and I know part of the point of novelizations is that it is following the script. um, And so it definitely does that. Like, it feels like you're watching the movie. Um, But for me, it felt like suddenly a lot of, like, sort of... So, okay, so here was how it felt. And and I'm very interested to hear if you did not feel this way. For me, it feels like the movie itself, like, the screenplay is actually, like, very liberal. And it's like, here is what here climate change is a real threat and we need to like politically be you know putting resources towards preventing it from happening and like here are the heroes and they're scientists and they believe the science and they're smart they're good at math and they like care about this and they're willing to like put their own lives on the line to like help others and like it feels very like progressive (laughs) and then the book for me felt like it had all of these like very conservative moments where it was just like being a man is about like helping your woman and so he like 
you know, puts his life at risk. And that's the motivation. It isn't like, hey, I want to help people in this like moment of this, this critical moment of stress. It was more like, I want to impress a girl (laughs) or I want to like do it for this reason. I don't know. And so it felt, it felt to me like this version of it actually felt very conservative in a way that was like surprising to me. Um, Like a lot of like, there was a lot of like, you know, wanting your son to get the girl and a lot of, um, a lot of weirdness around like the way they talked about Mexico, I felt, (laughs) and a lot of weirdness around the way they talked about the homeless character. Um, There was a part where they were like, I wonder if that man had a job before. And I was like, oh, wow, like what an odd way to tell us that you (laughs) feel this way about homeless people. There is a part where the book is like, he chose this, actually. The book says he chose this. choose to be homeless. Can you believe it? Let's... Let's go there. That's too crazy to brush past. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I mean. Is just like I felt like there were a lot of like conservative talking mm-hmm. points in the thought process of the characters that I was surprised by because the movie doesn't have that. So that's all I'll say. That's that's where I was coming from. I will say the language of the book, even though I agree with you on the point that the Luther thing, the homeless man uh, passage, is is a little. Uh, right-leaning and upsetting. Uh, I do think the language of the book sort of slowly won me over, where early on there's all these ornate passages about, oh, the folly of man. We had it all, and then we shat it all. And like I was like, this is stupid. This is overblown. And then towards the end, I was going, I'm totally with it. This, this only really works if you speak in this really verbose, uh, melodramatic way. Here's the Luther thing, which is sort of written in that way. Uh, It says, J.D. watched Luther methodically tearing the pages out of a book, page by careful page. He had found himself fascinated by this man who lived at the polar opposite of his own world. Before meeting Luther, he'd never given homeless people a second thought, except maybe to assume that they were probably either lazy or paranoid. Luther was neither. He had, instead, made a complicated and difficult choice to opt out of the world that, as far as J.D. was concerned, was the only one worth living in. Even if you couldn't have it all, then you could at least want it. Wasn't that how things were supposed to work? Not for this guy. Luther didn't want anything except food for Buddha, his dog, and to fulfill his own basic needs. JD had talked to him, not getting much out of him, because he was a solitary soul. But he'd discovered, among other things, that Luther hadn't ridden in a car in 20 years. JD thought, but he could not be sure, that Luther might once have been a journalist or a lawyer or something to do with the corporate world. The amazing thing was that he had not ended up like this through tragedy. He had chosen this life. How strange to get this second hand in his internal monologue, as opposed to in a scene where Luther, um, talks? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just, I thought it was just surprising Mm -hmm. and like, if if, it sort of in this like, big sequence of like the end of the world is coming and we have to hurry it was like throwing in some just like some like oh like did you know people could be homeless I don't know I just I felt like there was one of many examples of just sort of like a little monologue from the writer (laughs) what exactly is it saying that that's what I'm confused about like what does it mean that Luther opted out of the world are we meant to believe that he had some sort of suit and tie job and then he he walked out of his office and essentially decided to be the parents from the glass castle where he was like, I love just living on the street. I love it. 
Is is that what I'm meant to believe? That is certainly JD's interpretation of this man. What and the... I feel like because it is presented to us as truth, the position of the book is sort of like, look, homelessness isn't really a societal problem. You know, that's not yeah. really on us. People choose <laughs> it. And that's on them. Which as you build your new society in the post-Ice Age world, like, uh, what are you supposed to do with that? Yeah, you'd be if you believe that, you would just be waiting for people to declare themselves homeless. Oh, don't worry, we don't have to build enough structures to house everyone. Some people will opt into the ice. <laughs> yeah. Hannah, before we it, get too oh, far, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say you were saying that like for you the pros sort of like won you over as we went through. I think it helps that the cast of characters dwindles. Yes as well like early in the book we're we're checking in with like nine or ten plot lines constantly the wall street guy his colleague in japan the cop there's like a couple other char- characters who are like just there to die later yes yes and the movie gives you five seconds with them and then something oh, the the meteorologists there's like three different meteorologists you have to keep track of early in the book yes 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 who all just die horribly and he's doing all this like prose about people that you don't give a shit about and immediately die. And once it dwindles down to like a cast of characters who you know and you kind of care about, then when he wants to do like, you know, Sam running from wolves and he's like, they're <laughs> handing off penicillin and the it's all like, well, at least that'll make it if I don't. Like that becomes more potent because you like care about the fate of these people as opposed to like archetypes who exist to get sucked up into a tornado. Yeah. But what if I really like the Wall Street thing? Do you? Kind of. So here's here's the thing. <laughs> I, I agree that there's... Too much. I agree that there's so many people at the beginning that are just there to die. There's one guy who's just locking the security door at the Statue of Liberty and gets hit by a tsunami. He gets his a whole page. He yeah. just gets, wow, this is a hard door to lock. Why isn't it locking? <laughs> And, you, and they set up the door locking so much where they're like, he tried to shut it, but the green light wouldn't come on that I'm going, oh, it's because something's already amiss. No, it's just a random thing that's happening. And then he gets hit by a wave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the Wall Street thing, I might need a little help recapping this. But from my recollection, the Wall Street plot is that there is a guy who is doing shady insider trading type of crime with a man in, is it Japan? And uh, Hannah gave me the thumbs up. Uh, he gets called out by his boss. His boss walks in and goes, you know, I uh, am aware that you are doing crime and you are not <laughs> fired, but you have to make sure that you don't make a profit off this crime deal or else we're all in super hot water. You'll go to jail. And this dude tries to essentially withdraw or tank his own deal on the day that the coming global catastrophe yeah, the, the occurs. titular day on the titular <laughs> day after after tomorrow he and so he gets in this situation where his contact in Japan uh, is killed I believe by a giant uh, hailstone and the guy in America starts frantically calling the father of his contact in Japan and he's going I don't know how to speak Japanese I have to explain to this man somehow that his son and I were committing a crime and he has to undo the crime. And it was sort of cowboys and aliens for me 
where I was thinking to myself, I know this doesn't go anywhere. I know that this plot will, this man will be snuffed out somehow, but I would watch this movie. That's a, that's sort of a, a, a lawyerly thriller about <laughs> trying to get a crime that you committed undone and it can only be undone in Japan. Yes, but here's my butt on this. Reading this book, I hadn't rewatched the movie and I didn't totally remember which characters make it into the library. Yeah. So I was like, oh, this must be one of the guys in the library because yeah. why would you do this much work for a nothing character? Um, and I hold that point. There's no reason to do this much work on a character who then gets on a bus and dies. Yeah. If it's one of the people in the library who then has a journey to go on or one of the guys who in the library and then follows the cop and is like, I think we have to keep moving. My life has been about moving forward or whatever. Maybe. Okay. We get all this backstory in the movie. That guy, we don't, the guy in Japan and any wall street guys are totally disconnected. There's no link there. We see the wall street guys for one second who are like, we're getting on a bus. Oh no, our bus was drowned. (laughs) There's no, there's no purpose to this. It is, you know, I often want this type of thing from a novelization. I want to build outside characters. I want to add to themes using people who are not main characters. But this was like too much, like way too much. Don't need it. Want to like Sam disappears from this book for like 50 pages at a time early on. And I yeah. don't care. I want him. He's the main character. Yeah, I definitely miss Sam. Um, And I do think Mm -hmm. what you're describing is really interesting, but it does feel like it's like not like the the world is ending in this book. And I like would like to focus on that because I think that's urgent. And the Wall Street guy very late is like, oh, the world is ending. I guess I'm off the hook. Yeah, he's like, yeah, you don't have to go to jail. Let me let me find that. That is such. I like that passage a lot. Sorry, what was that? Oh, I was just saying I would love for Gary to have his own movie. It just for me, it felt distracting from like the central stuff that was mm-hmm. happening, which is like so juicy and compelling. But um, I do, to your point, like I do think there's like a great thriller in having to like <laughs> translate your crime uh, to save <laughs> to save your life. <laughs> I mean, admittedly my brain is poisoned and and I read so many novelizations that whenever one is doing something, I go, it's doing something. Here we go. But I, I legitimately liked this. Uh, this is, uh, how does Gary perish? Oh, the bus. You, mm-hmm. you the bus. It. But before he goes, he, as you alluded to, he has this carefree attitude because he realizes he probably won't be arrested because the world is ending. And he goes to get a drink It says, Gary had bought some camels on the way in. He unwrapped them, took one out, and then rummaged in his pocket for the lighter he'd also bought. I thought you quit, Paul said. From here on in, I'm living every day like it was my last, brother. You never know what's in store for you. One minute, you're looking at $10 million. What's that? Like a bus or a giant wave. Right, yeah, he's, he's, he's celebrating the randomness of life that itself will take him out. One minute, you're looking at $10 million. The next, you're looking at 10 years in prison. Whatever. Gary knew he was getting louder. He knew that. He knew, indeed, that he was getting so loud that people were noticing, even over the din of weeping that filled the place. I pay five grand a month for an apartment my maid spends more time in than I do. What is that about? I'm telling you, Pauly, it's about time to make some changes. Say goodbye to the old, selfish, materialistic, greedy Gary. I am no longer going to be a slave to the almighty dollar. Now, 
he's still a dick to the bus driver. And this this is what I like about some of these backstories that we get for people that we know are doomed. It is tempting to give someone a backstory if they die in a movie. So think Rogue One. We love the Rogue One novelization. It does something very well, which is when the planet blows up or whatever, the city blows up, we get all these passages that essentially show the idyllic nature or the day-to-day nature of life and how it is disrupted by a giant beam blowing up your city. I like that this book doesn't do the obvious thing. It doesn't go, here's all of these virtuous people struck down by the folly of politicians. They show people and they go, hmm, some of them, kind of scumbags. (laughs) That's fine. It's just too much of it. I don't need... You know, this is a 250-page book. I don't need 30 pages on fucking Gary. <laughs> I don't need it. And honestly, I couldn't tell who all these characters were. I lost track of the names. Like, mm-hmm, all mm-hmm. the meteorologists, all Gary, all the other guys. I was like, I don't know who this is. And the book doesn't do enough work to remind you right away. Like, yeah, yes, Gary, our Wall Street guy. We remember him? And I'd be like, yes, I do. But it doesn't do that. So I don't. And it takes me a while to catch up. Yeah, the other thing, Hannah, is when they introduce a new character, they use the first and last name. And then there's an assumption <laughs> that you've memorized that yes. <laughs> from that point on. So it can be totally mm-hmm. tricky. Also, one thing I just want to call out because it's just like a funny, like, time has gone by thing. But in this world, this man is like the slave to the almighty dollar. He commits crimes. He's like, my maid sees my apartment more than me. How much could is the most you could spend on an apartment five thousand dollars <laughs> and now in new york yeah. it's like every you know every apartment is like thousands of dollars like it's crazy um but it's just really funny it's just like the the idea that like this is like the wealthiest man who will come to this um this fall is it's, reading it now it like makes me weep into you know my <laughs> my own apartment i can't afford i mean living in chicago i had the opposite reaction i went five thousand dollars in 2004 how is he alive (laughs) hannah before we get too far in yeah you seen this movie before what do you Uh think of her um for some reason i cannot remember i watched this movie like all the time in high school Mm -hmm. like i would just get home and pop in a dvd and watch the day after tomorrow Mm -hmm. and i did that with a lot of movies to be fair but i don't know what it is about this one that captured me so could could the reason perhaps be one one half of a famous sibling pair uh, who perhaps dated taylor swift for a while i i don't think so actually like i like jake as much as anybody he's a very charming young fellow and he's very cute in this movie he's a cutie patootie with ruffled hair like he's adorable i don't really think that's what it was for me Mm-hmm. I'm going to echo that. I think it's like somehow the micro macro of this really works. And it's like very compelling to like care about this family and then mm-hmm. also see like the big picture. Because yes, you're right. Jake is like very cute. And it's like the height of like Jake Gyllenhaal. Like, you know, everyone like just like very having, baby having his, his poster, you know. Um, but that wasn't yes. what it was for me either. So I think, yeah. I think there's really something to like the father son dynamic that really captured me. The like survival thriller aspect really excited me of like, how would you stay alive in this very, very scary, hard to predict situation? The like whimsy of getting trapped in a library. <laughs> there's just like a, a, su- a geostorm of factors, if I may, that worked for me, I guess. And I watched it a lot. Um, and watching it again yesterday, I was like, I don't totally remember what I loved about this. Nobody's asked me, but this movie was one of the 
movies when I was young that made me think I didn't like movies. <laughs> oh no! And looking back on it, I, it must have been. When did Armageddon come out? Uh, 1990 something. Because it was very hot when I was a teenager to watch these disaster films. So Day After Tomorrow was a new one coming out. Armageddon was one that had been out for a while and had buzz. I think what was going on was that we would go to sleepovers. We'd want to feel adult. We'd want to rent something PG-13. The mom or dad involved would be like, if you see a leg or a navel, I'm going to get killed in the public (laughs) square. And so they would get us these disaster films. Like I saw, you know, uh, the two I mentioned, plus like Volcano and The Core and and all these movies. Mm -hmm. And I think probably my least favorite film genre, just across the board, the faceless villain. You know, there's no no pathos to the the conflict coming from the villain because it is weather and this is also the era of the needless B plot i remember sitting in day after tomorrow which i found to be an exhausting movie when i was 13 and going oh my god why is she talking to this kid with cancer what is going on like this was the era of every movie I mean, that's has like a to have D plot but it is annoying i'm with you it there. is annoying this era of movies was like we have to have a thrilling a plot we have to have a romance we have to have uh something that tugs at your heartstrings and sometimes even even more factors uh i think it's amazing that as a culture we've gotten to a point where we're going sometimes the horror movie is just they have to get out of the room like i i i'm 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 proud of us for getting there but yeah i i legitimately thought i didn't like movies because the day after tomorrow was so formless and exhausting. Oh no, mm. I'm so sorry to hear that, but also wanted to you don't think that the villain is the vice president. I think the villain of the book is the vice president. I don't think the movie's doing enough with him to call him a villain. It's not like in Twister, which absolutely has a human villain for no reason at all. Where Carrie Elwes is like actively causing problems. But see, I like that one. See, I don't I love Twister. Okay, I love Twister. Great movie. They got to get those balls up in the air. They got to get them up. And they have to survive while they do it. Cows are flying. (laughs) Twister is a great (laughs) movie, but it does not need a human villain because the storms are good enough. Yeah. And Gary shows up and you're like, why is this guy doing this shit? A, there's bigger things on the table, like a Twister or in our case, the day after tomorrow, Superstorm. Like, why are you causing problems right now? Mm-hmm. In the way that I appreciate in Day After Tomorrow that JD is like, is he a is he a bad kid? And very quickly, he's like a fine kid who's happy to help here for the bigger picture because he understands that there's more important things than like getting the girl. I also love JD. I do think like one of the things I like about this is it's an example of how to make a love triangle that doesn't suck. <laughs> that it was like, that was like, oh, you know, one of these people, they're not evil and like twisting their mustache. It's like, oh yes, like we're all 17, we're all kids and like we all mm-hmm. just want to live, <laughs> um, which I think we're is We're all like, equally appealing and yeah. responsible and kind and it's so funny though when jd is like you should just tell her how you feel and sam's like oh thanks for your permission (laughs) (laughs) the the book does deal in the change in perspective on jd we do get multiple Mm -hmm. passages which are sam going he was actually really stepping up and he seemed like a really quality guy and then there's a separate passage that says something along the lines of uh he was in he was in love with laura but i was in love with laura so I don't know, not a bad quality to have. (laughs) (laughs) I did love that line. Some of Sam's like 
teenage brain perspective moments in this book are really funny. Like that little piece is funny. The part where Laura tries to warm him up with her body heat, which is an inherently very sexy thing. And the book is like, he's so worried about getting a boner. (laughs) Really funny. Funny. Feels true to life. On 212, just to jump very late in the book, the characters of Sam and Laura kiss, mm-hmm. and we get this passage. Oh, no, yes, uh-huh, yeah. Deep in her throat, she made a little sound, and he knew it for what it was, a sound of relief, of joy. She had been hoping for this, waiting for it. He moved against her, took her in his arms, and opened his mouth to her mouth. Just an unsexy way to describe <laughs> kissing. Opened his mouth to her mouth. He felt himself becoming excited, and he knew that the pressure of it would be against her free arm, and it happened, and she did not move. <laughs> yeah, that's. I made a note on that, too. It's weird. I'm not saying don't write about a boner. You could do it, but it, it's written in such a strange way. He felt himself becoming excited, and he knew that the pressure of it would be against her free arm. Something very strange about free arm. And it happened, mm. and she did not move. It's it like, feels to me, go yeah. if I may say, like an author who has not written a lot of fiction and definitely hasn't written a lot of sexy fiction, and is like, I have to get the geography of this very clear. Like, everybody needs to know where everybody is in this moment. So, like, they've already talked about, like, where one of her arms is. And he's like, I have to clarify that this is the other arm, is what that feels like to me. Yeah, I agree with you. It's He's thinking of this romantic situation in, it's 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 like the explaining plot holes away that don't need to be explained of a sexy scene. Where yeah. he's like, and then, of course, because her mouth was... Still on my mouth, she was breathing through her nose, so don't worry about her. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. While we're thinking about the author, I don't really do the segment on the show anymore where I talk about the author's biography, but there are some details about Whitley Stryver we have to This is an intense biography. (laughs) Yes, please, tell me more. Okay, are you speaking of the one in the back of the book, Lizzie? Oh, I wasn't, that one is good, but I also did some research about, um, you know, all of the the fun other books he's written. Please, please, I, I talk so much. Please tell our listeners about Whitley. Oh, no, well, I don't have it written in front of me, but I do know that he mostly comes from like a horror background and has written lots of books yes. about like vampires and witches, which I also love horror. So I'm like on the level of like, yes, this is what, what if you could write a book about anything, why would it not be about vampires? Um, but he has also <laughs> written a series of books, um, I believe that he considers nonfiction about his own alien abduction uh which i believe is five of them and at one point someone called them fiction and he freaked out and said they're absolutely non-fiction based on his real experience uh of being abducted in 1985 um and then also in those books he does some very odd things i apparently where he like lies about like i i, I didn't get deep into it but he lies about being okay shooting. so he comes to prominence as you say doing horror books he is the author of the hunger the David Bowie movie uh, directed by Tony Scott. Uh, so that's sort of his big thing. And that's a that's a series, even though only the first one gets adapted into a movie. He also has, as you say, his nonfiction career, which is about getting abducted by aliens. So although... he's not a climate scientist no, at all. But he did nope. write the nonfiction okay. book that the screenplay is based on, which is so it's so the scientist yes. brought in a writer to help make it more writer-y. 
more written, probably. He wasn't, he didn't write the screenplay. So he wrote the book it was based on. They brought in new screenwriters right. and then but he wrote this. The book it was based on, he's a co author. Yes. But so, he's, like, if he's, he's in not bed the scientist. Deep, like, okay. deep. Like, he, he and They're Art married. Bell for years had two separate shows that were like sister shows on on a, a radio network of some sort and not the type of radio network that you would get on the radio more of like a more of like an alex jones thing where it's like you just have to know where to find it and you can get it <laughs> so yeah the, okay. he, it wasn't a case of art bell hiring him on it seems they're like a team which is sort of interesting mm. uh but his art books, bell is a climate scientist who knows <laughs> Oh my God! <laughs> his books uh, uh, about his own abduction, as you say, Lizzie, get switched from the first book, Communion, which is this huge hit, number one New York Times bestseller for nonfiction, get switched to fiction for book two, which he's furious about. But also, he maintains that people should not refer to them as alien abductions. He is not willing to pigeonhole himself and say this is an extraterrestrial event. He seems to believe... As opposed to fervently believing in certain conspiracies, he's very much going, I really, uh, things are happening to me, but I don't know what they are. And I don't know what genre of I believe he called them non-human beings, is how he refers Non-human beings. Mm. And then, as, as you touched on, he talks in the first book, Communion, about how he is a Steve Ranazizi figure of sorts, in the sense that he claimed to be at a school shooting that he categorically was not at. And oh. it, it, to his credit, in his published nonfiction book, he is admitting to having done that. So he's getting out in front of it. But then when people ask him about it on further book tours and stuff, he starts writing into the books that he decided that he was there and he believes that maybe the extraterrestrial or whatever it is, non-human activity has tampered with his memory or something. And there's a very funny quote on the Wikipedia page where someone goes, uh, no matter what he's saying, he always claims that he saw a child be shot and there were not children shot. So it's just not true. And then it goes, his mother says he was out of state or something like that. Wow. A character. Yeah, a real real character and wild career too of like, I worked on this like huge $100 million movie, but also I I write these like horror novels on the side. Like, I mean, I'm all for like diversity of work and what you're creating, but um, it's just like a really interesting, <laughs> odd career. I just want to say the author photo in the back Looks like he is an L. Ron Hubbard-esque cult leader. <laughs> I mean, he right? looks like Hubbard. Yes. Yeah. He's, I think, leaning into it. I Googled Art Bell, and I, the picture on his week, Wikipedia page looks like... It's incredible. It looks like he's like at a jazz A Matt club. Berry character. Yeah. <laughs> it's these two men. Shocking, horrifying. I'm, I don't think... Neither of them are climate scientists in any capacity. And they wrote a fucking science book? Well, this is why scientists say, you know, this movie has <laughs> no foot in science. Uh, but cool, it exists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Zero. Oh, so my god. I do want to say, because I, 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 I don't want to uh, slander this man, that I, I did just look back at the article, and uh, his mother says he was in state, but doesn't believe he was at the shooting. 
Oh my god! Wow. To get us back into the book, I, I mean, I just we just had to talk about that. That would be crazy if we did this episode and we were like, <sighs> and surely he's a he's a bona fide climate <laughs> scientist. I really thought he was in some kind of science, some capacity. But good God! I wow, just a nut. I job. like the book, and I like, you know, not going to comment on what I think of the man and his past actions, but I like that this guy who had a foot in fiction first, moved into nonfiction. I like that when he was presented with the opportunity to novelize the movie based on his book, he said yes. I think that's neat. There are certainly points, I think it's neat too, points in the book where you're like, I, who didn't know he was not a scientist at all, definitely was like, well, this is now a scientist who's like, let me present to you some stuff in this setting in a different context so that you can get an idea of how dangerous and real this science is, but it's not real at all. No. And there is a part, um, there is a part where they talk about numbers on a scale and they're like, they don't say the numbers that much. They're just like, these numbers were so astronomically big, so devastating, but they just like keep talking. It's like adjectives (laughs) about the numbers. Um, And that's when I was like, I don't think this man's a scientist because he's just like, you know, we're not explaining what these numbers mean. It's really just like a lot of like Mm. hype words to to realize like, you know, the big bad is coming. Yeah. And it's going to be so bad. Is the thing about the mammoth true? Does anyone know? They say it so much. If, if that's true, true. <laughs> that 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 uh, that that we have found woolly mammoths who died with with meat in their mouth, suggesting that they were frozen in a previous ice age in 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 moments. Uh, how did I never hear about that in a science class? It's the most fascinating fact ever ever bestowed upon me. I mean, I think sometimes you read about like mammoths that like fall into water and are frozen very quickly. And that's why they're so well preserved or like bog bodies, right? That are Mm -hmm. preserved by the natural elements of the bog and don't decompose and you get some of that stuff. But this book really makes it sound like things just like froze up on the land in instance, which is very scary if true. Um, I will say I am doing a quick Google and they did find a baby mammoth who was frozen in permafrost. So I do think there is some mm. some reality to this, but I think they are hyping it up for for the movie. If I may say that I don't love disaster movies because I really find mass death very upsetting. Yes. Yeah, I think that maybe actual, this is uh... the book, the Harvard section where Laura cries about like, not only can I no longer go to Harvard, but there is no Harvard. I think that the book mm-hmm. actually, one of the things I think it does much better than the movie is it shows like the sadness of how sad this would be. And also mm-hmm. the anger that kids and right now we're seeing this happen, that kids would feel towards the older generation for there's a part where he says very explicitly, if you loved us, why would you leave us with this kind of world? And I think that this book... Um, Again, crazy 20 years ago, like people knew what they were doing. Um, But I think this book does a much better job at showing the sadness and anger that comes with this kind of devastation than the movie does, which is kind of like, isn't this cool that a tsunami would flood New York City? Um, You know, and there's sadness on a level at the end when they're like in the helicopter, but it's not really as explicit as I think Laura crying saying Harvard Mm -hmm. is gone. Um, yeah, the the line is something like I, I don't have it on hand, but it's the the Harvard line is so good. It's something along the lines of uh, the narration saying 
She was experiencing a complete sadness, not just the loss of an opportunity, not being able to go to Harvard, but the realization that the reason it had been taken from her is because Harvard no longer existed. Yeah. It's like, that would be scary. I feel this on a bigger scale. Like when the book is saying, like it is very sad to realize like your future is over on a personal level, totally. When the book is like, millions of people are dying right now. There are passages in this book that are just like people getting swept away, freezing in moments, in mass numbers that to me are so horrifying to consider and upsetting. Mm-hmm. And maybe this comes out of like a my relationship to 9-11. I don't know. But especially in 2004, I think a lot of that has to feel like this, this mass national trauma and horror of like at any moment new york city could just be gone and that's millions of people when he draws the line on the map and is like evacuate everybody below that and everyone's like you mean everybody above that two below that and he's like no no it's too late for them that's half the country it's too late for is like soul upsetting to me like it makes me sick to think about it (laughs) Um, and you're right. I think that the movie is like kind of fun. It's it's not flippant about the deaths that are happening, but it it there's a level of distance that makes it less upsetting to me. And the book, I think partially because it spends so much time with all these people who just die, which I don't think helps the book as a book, but it does make every you didn't single need to know about the those. surfers. No, I didn't. The surfers who show up for three paragraphs just to die. Yeah, I didn't totally need that. I don't think that's helping the book. They had had umpteenth beers the previous night. It made it harder. Existential anxiety and fear and dread and misery. And like, if this happened for real, I think I would just die of grief for the world, for all these people. It's just too, too horrible to consider. They say that in a... In a moment, and this is something we don't see in the movie either, they say in London that someone's having a heart attack every 13 minutes um, and that they just can't keep up with it because of the mass sadness. <laughs> and yeah, that's yeah. something that they just don't cover. I mean, we don't see Europe at all in the movie. It's really just like this mm-hmm. America story. Um, I think they say 14 seconds. Oh, wow. Even worse. <laughs> yeah. It's just so yeah. uh, deeply upsetting to me. <laughs> No, I think it's really upsetting to me, too, to know that this book is 20 years old. Like, that's what it is. It's like an extra layer of, like, yes, this is an upsetting idea. And also, like, we're still where we are. We're we're making it worse. We're not doing anything about it. Well, speaking of the political divide, it feels like maybe not this movie specifically, but this explanation of climate change, be it real or false, has informed both sides of the political divide. Because to us very liberal-leaning people, we look at this and we go, uh, Roland Emmerich was warning us about this 20 years ago, and we did nothing? And then, you know, the Republicans in my life, uh, with their old-ass brains, they say stuff like, you know, it's a natural process. I don't think we're affecting it. It feels like everyone took the worst things away from Mm -hmm. stuff like this. You can walk away from this going, yeah, we accelerated a little bit, but you know, it's a natural process. If it comes, it comes. This story also has an element of the only way anyone's going to take it seriously is if it happened in two days. Like the slow march of time will never affect politics. It would have to be an extinction level event for politicians to realize they should do something. How funny is it that 
in order to make this work as a as a cinematic experience, as something with dramatic heft or momentum, that the the the, the smart guy in the movie, Dennis Quaid, who sees it coming, saw it coming by like a day. Yeah. That is, that was so funny to me this time that he's running around the whole book going, if only they had listened to me on Friday. There is a yeah, there is a whole passage where he says, We should have been having this conversation three days ago. As if three days <laughs> would have saved the world. Yes. I think there's also an element of it where a lot of other people say we should have been listening to that guy a long time ago. And when people come to him and say, You were right, he says uh, I thought I was right in a hundred years. I never would have thought yes. it was happening tomorrow, which I think is an interesting element of science. And also that he's like, I'm a paleoclimatologist. I don't have future forecasts. I have no idea how to know how this is going to happen. I've never thought about that quite like this. I like that too. I... Interesting little science touches. Just from a movie making perspective, I think it's funny to frame him as the the wise person who was slighted and also have it be a three-day weekend event. <laughs> Hannah, I didn't mean to sweep under the rug your your point about uh, the 9-11 and, and, and crushing grief. I was just thinking the other day how crazy it was that the reimagined Battlestar Galactica right after 9-11 was like, what if we made 9-11 the show? Would that be fun? And everyone said yes. Like, literally just a show about what if grief crushed you so bad. Yeah, we don't make shows like that quite the same anymore. I mean, yeah. even our our dramas, our heavy boots dramas are also funny. We can't just make misery shows anymore. Yeah, yeah. and it wasn't fun back then. What the fuck were we thinking? <laughs> we were processing something as a culture and doing it the best we could. And that's my read on this book. I think that Whitley Stryber shows so much mass death because he's processing his experience witnessing that shooting. <laughs> <sighs> Oh Whether he did or not, he thinks he did. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, I think bringing up 9-11 is very fair, knowing that it's 2004, so it's only three years ago in this world, and obviously it, it is yeah. New York. I think it's 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 something also that they say, like, they did it on purpose, that it's about, like, how people from across the aisle can join when something, like, so, you know, terrible happens. So I think they're evoking it for mm -hmm. a very specific reason. Um, and they also cast someone yeah. who looks so much like Dick Cheney, <laughs> uh, very explicitly <laughs> uh, to be, I know, 2004 is an election year. Like, there's a lot going on when this comes out um they're mm -hmm. not being coy about it which is why people were upset mm -hmm. about it but i do think i do think to your point hannah i do think they're bringing up 9-11 imagery especially around new york on purpose to say like you know global warming is another thing we need to be like prioritizing on this level yeah uh, but it's a toughie yeah <laughs> it's, it's like, a the, toughie. the movie's kind of fun about it like it's very <laughs> upsetting it is upsetting when you like really think about it and for me this time around watching the storm surge just like come into New York City was very upsetting. Mm -hmm. But the movie moves quickly enough that then you're caught up in the personal drama. You're in a small scale survival story that I like stopped thinking about the million people who drowned, right? Um, in a way that the book doesn't let you do. It keeps bringing you back to like, and also millions and millions and millions of people are dying right now. And we're, we can't do anything about it. Yeah, the book is relentlessly sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very upsetting. I came to really admire how the book scolded me so bad. There are so many passages of this book that boil down to if you numbnuts had just gotten it together. There's one passage where 
Jack Hall, I think, says there's so much we could have done for free in our own homes to have avoided this. Yes. Which is, I think we've all come to a place with climate change where like, it's not my fault because I, I use plastic straws sometimes, actually. It's oil companies more than me. But there's literally a point in this book where he's like, if you had used your metal straws, we would all be fine. Tisk, tisk, tisk. The energy was there. What was not there was the will to see the truth. And so nature had done her worst. Ironically, proper planning and greenhouse gas management could have staved off the disaster for years, possibly until ways were found to interrupt the ice cycle that had the planet in its grip once and for all. Alone among world leaders, the Canadian Prime Minister had pointed out that simple voluntary measures could be done in the home at virtually no cost and could save or and could have reduced uh, human greenhouse gas emissions so that the catastrophe would have been averted at no cost, maybe for years, maybe forever. Now, instead of these millions of people living out their precious lives, there was vast death across the northern half of the planet. A civilization thousands of years old had fallen, and along this border, in wretched camps, huddled the pitiful remnant of its greatness. <laughs> um, yeah, you guys, aren't we all doing greenhouse gas management from our homes? <laughs> like, sorry, my bad. Um, yeah, I, I'll turn my drill off. Um, <laughs> I, it's, it is, I do think this shows how far you know we've sort of come on like what this is going to take and like that it's a big problem and not... Not an easy fix. Uh, that is a wild passage to me that we could have just, you know, for free, turn your lights off, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely we have a different perspective now on like how we can avert some of this stuff. See, I, I enjoy, though, that the book has such a perspective. And I don't mean that in some literary uh, criticism type of way. I mean, it literally, the, the narration is basically a character that goes... This could have happened. This could have happened. Boy, when this happens, that'll suck so bad. And I like that. I like that this book, whether I agree with its perspective or not, has mm -hmm. such a distinct voice and opinion. Yeah, the book's attitude towards politicians is very interesting, I think, too, where it clearly is like, poo-poo, vice president didn't listen to the science. Shame on him. But like, wow, the president, what a hero. The president <laughs> um, passage is so Funny. The White House passage, a, too. It's yeah, great. let me, I have this one, I think, on 186. He's talking about, like, the concept. Starts on 185. Oh, yeah. boy. Yep, it sure does. The president was under no illusions. He knew his history. This little house, and it was astonishingly small, considering all that transpired within its walls, had been the headquarters of the greatest engine of human prosperity and happiness that mankind had ever devised, <laughs> but which was the presidency of the United <laughs> States, which is laughable. Then it goes on. From here, Harry Truman had probably saved the million, the lives of millions by snuffing out the lives of thousands with two nuclear bombs. As if that's a really good thing. Great. The greatest prosperity yeah. of mankind, Hannah. <laughs> uh, yeah, to do war crimes. Yeah. Um, from here, JFK had claimed the moon for the genius of man. Sure, I'll allow it. Here, Abraham Lincoln had asked Ulysses S. Grant to win a war for him. That's not what I would call the greatness of his presidency. <laughs> Here, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had declared that the United States would not become a nation of the starving, but that a compassionate government would reach out and rescue its people from a depression that nobody even understood. Sure, maybe. And here, 
Ronald Reagan had made the hard, dangerous, and unpopular decisions that had caused the Soviet Union to bankrupt itself in pursuit of an arms race. Communism was too in- inefficient to win. Which, like, is a conservative viewpoint. This is what I'm saying. So hard. It is crazy. Like, that entire patches is a roller coaster of, like, are we cool with atom bombs? Are we cool with Reaganism? That's <laughs> what you're saying is the height of human accomplishment? Uh, scary. Freaky. <laughs> bad. Don't care for it. And then when the president, unfortunately, dies in the snow, everyone's like, oh, he was truly a great man. What a loss is our president. And you're like, it's sad, but like, maybe he was a Republican. Is there a way to spin this where Whitley is showing us how the president actually is? And it's actually a little bit admirable that he's going, look at this crusty motherfucker. Oh, I don't think so. I think this is very earnest and genuine. And Whitley is saying, like, we're going to go, this admirable man is going to go down with the White House because he knows how it, that this is so important. And I, I, this is sort of coming back to what I was talking about earlier. I just, I do feel like these little, like, don't we all love Reagan? It's sprinkled throughout the book. (laughs) I'm with Lizzie. But I don't, I think there are really, to your point about like the language, there are these like beautiful sweeping things about like the planet and looking at it from space and these huge, you know, these huge pieces about what does it mean to be a human. But then also they're like, by the way, wasn't it cool when we dropped the atom bomb? I mean, I think that the final (laughs) message of the book is the part was like, have you ever seen the air so clear? Right. Which is a good, positive, hopeful statement. Yes. That is riding on the back of the deaths of half of humanity. That what he's saying is that like, it's good to wipe out half of the world because that's actually what we need to do to, for the, the world no, to no, for no. humanity to thrive. No, no, no. no, no. That's how I'm I sorry. read that is he's like, this Look, was in the end, a good thing. No, I, I, I want to approach that in what I see to be a Help more me. nuanced way. Protect which it, because it, it felt a little bad this time. Look, I don't, I don't know how how comfortable I feel in the in the hands of Whitley. Like, I I don't know <laughs> if I'd go to bat for him every time, but it, I don't think that just because the world got Thanos snapped in this movie that he's that he's not allowed to claim a positive thing. The 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 clear air, I don't think is saying it's great that all these people died. I think that it is in conversation with the passages about we could have done differently. We could have lived differently. We could have prepared for this. I think it's like, well, no one would have ever wanted us to get to this this way, but isn't it so beautiful? It's absolutely tragic that we were forced here by mass death. I don't think it has to be an endorsement of mass death in order to be... Yeah. Interesting. And just to piggyback on that, I think also it's um it's about like isn't the world we live in beautiful and isn't it worth saving? Mm-hmm. Like looking at it from space, like isn't this planet miraculous and isn't it something that like now that we're all on the same page that climate change is real that like we're going to like actively you know the title the day after tomorrow it's literally like a future where we all agree (laughs) that this is like an existential (laughs) crisis which is still not happened so maybe the day after tomorrow takes place in like 2050 or something but um it's yeah I mean I think it is devastating to your Mm -hmm. point Hannah I'm on your level like it's it's really devastating that like the the way that they're saying the only way we can get to a 
place where we will save the earth is for half of humanity to disappear. Um, really, really sad, but and grim. But I think I think that the idea is that it's it's about like, isn't this world special? Okay, I'll accept it. I'll take it. Sure. I mean, there's also a plot line in the book, which is not in the movie, where the astronauts are like, we're going to die up here. We can't get back to Earth due to what's happening on Earth. So we're going to die up Wait, here. Wait, I'm so glad and you then... say this because I think this should be its own movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great concept for a movie as well. Where they're like, we have to ration our food. We have maybe three months, but there may be no one to come get us. Like the space shuttles are all underwater and we're in the space station and we're just going to fucking die up here as we watch the Earth die and everyone we've ever loved die beneath us. Dark shit. And then to cap that with like wow beautiful planet though phew we made it it's both <laughs> nice and a little bit macabre to me i don't know i'm not in support of the international space station stuff in the book simply because <laughs> even by the most generous standards it has no arc uh i like i like my boy gary crooked wall street guy because he thinks one thing's going on then he thinks another thing's going on then he has an epiphany then he dies i like i really <laughs> like the setup they give in the book for the news anchor. I'm sorry. I like it. The news anchor just works so damn hard to get this spot reporting on, on the beginnings of the storm before he gets hit by that billboard in the movie. And he gets the funniest line in the fucking book, which is, do you know what I'm talking about, Lizzie? Um, I do love this sequence. I don't remember the exact line, though. The line is when uh, Lizzie was nodding. That's why. But the 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 line is that He's watching surfers who <laughs> are just surfing to their certain death. It's like the end of Point Break. He's not seeing them die, but he sees them go down in such a way where it's obvious. And he's on the news and doesn't know what to say. And he just keeps going, that one's got to hurt. <laughs> and, then, and then there's there's yeah. lines in his in, in, internal monologue where he's going, I really hope that guy comes back up now. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff early on where people are like i just saw someone die i just witnessed a death absolutely 100 percent. very upsetting and weird when the when the one meteorologist like a taxi cab flips onto his car and kills him the yeah. passage there is like two yellow cars now one car but also red because of blood that was like, that was <laughs> so upsetting and i also wrote that line down because i thought way. it was so fun like such a like flippant way to, re <laughs> to yes. write about this um and also just quickly before we move on i want to say one word in defense of the international space section space station yes. section which is um, I think that it's not supposed to be an arc as much as it's a me measuring stick of like this the storm getting bigger and that you have some mm -hmm. voice from above that's able to be like, all right, like now it looks like a hurricane and now the hurricanes are conjoining together. And so for me, it's like almost about the passage of time and like keeping us, the audience, like that we know where we are in the story. Um, but to your point, yeah, they like don't, they go through this really like scary time, but they don't grow at all as people, which I think I'm okay with because there are so many characters. <laughs> I don't, I can only follow so no many yeah um like the little sprinkles you get where it's like the one of the astronauts is like well my wife lives in florida so she's probably fine but my colleagues from russia and japan their families are dead and i just don't know how to talk about that yeah it's just like a little too much sprinkle on a very crowded sunday i i agree i think that the it's the difference between the mediums that that i'm chafing against here in the movie uh, you know, a, a, 
I'm going to patent my what the phrase I'll become famous for now. Um, let me let me get it perfectly. No pressure's uh, on. <laughs> a cut is the softest kiss. It'll be like my book name. So when you go from whatever's happening into a movie to the overhead shot of the Earth as as just a cinematic cut, it can feel so natural, right? Like this, the score brings you there or just the momentum of the previous scene allows you to go up into space for like four seconds. And then you're back with Jake Gyllenhaal. You're back with Dennis Quaid. You saw, oh my God, the storm's so big, but I didn't lose any momentum of what was happening. I'm really, I'm still in all these moments at once. In a book to go up into the space station and as Hannah says, put these sprinkles on it and go, Damn, this guy's pits really smelled that day, which isn't in there, but he talks about smell. The, it, it, it puts me too in the head of these characters to then get nothing out of the head of these characters. I would rather have uh, one or two sentences that without explanation just say, from above, it appeared to be a giant hurricane now, or something like that. Yeah. A cut is the softest kiss. You did remind me that I love the uh, score to this movie. I always feel like an idiot watching movies because unless it's the most, unless it's the, the the most flashy score of all time, I never can remember the score to a film. <laughs> it might be because I just rewatched it, but um, I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, this is like you know dramatic but romantic. I was like, yep, yeah, I'm I'm on board. Look, I kind of like this movie. Movie kind of totally works for me. Like I don't <laughs> think it's good necessarily, but I was along for the ride. I had a good time watching it again. That's exactly what I'm defining a daytime movie as, Hannah, to circle back yeah. to your opening joke. Yes, this movie does not, like, I don't want to go to the movie theater and spend $35 on, like, a ticket and a popcorn, but I do want to watch it when I'm homesick from work, and that's how I, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's always, always yeah. A, a, a pleasure for me to, like, dip back into this world. I want to watch Dennis Quaid walk through the snow. I want to watch Jake, like, be wet or whatever. <laughs> I like that stuff. I like the little argument that the other two people in the library have of like what books are worth saving, which things can't we burn? Judith is my favorite character by far. I am so team He's Judith. <laughs> um, everything she does is right. Which one's Judith? Um, she is the librarian. She's sorry. Oh, okay, this is thank an you. Example. She is the she is the librarian who um, she is like she gives a Dr. Seuss book to the kid who is scared. She is like hiding the Gutenberg Bible. She is like helping keep the fire going and is kind of like the mom character for all of these people in this like bad situation mm-hmm. where she she's the one who's like you can't burn books and they're like yes we are doing that. We have to. Um, I love when Brian is like guys stop fighting over Nietzsche. There's tax law yeah. down here. That shit don't matter. We're gonna burn that first. The book hits that joke twice, essentially, because later in the book, they're like, and then they threw onto the fire some IRS rules. And I, I, I thought, that's the same joke. Come up with a different boring thing. Hey, that government don't exist no more. So you think I'm paying taxes in a government that throws 20 million people? No. I'm just saying, what's something else that's really boring aside from taxes? So much of life is boring. Uh, just, you know, if you're going to hit that beat again in the book, say that it's, uh, it, it describes how to, how to wire the pay phones of New York City or something. I do think that 
most of the books along the edges of the main reading room in the main branch of the public library are boring shit like IRS tax law. Like there's no fun fiction books in there for you to like pluck off the shelf and read. (laughs) They're like, don't touch these. If you want a book, you ask a librarian and then we'll look at you the whole time. And we'll ask why you want it, which I didn't care for personally. What what book were you trying to get? Oh, at one point I wanted to get a book of like criticism on Raymond Chandler and I just couldn't find it anywhere, but it was at the library. So I went to the library and I was like, I'd like to read this book, please. And they're like, why? And I had to be like, personal research. And they're like, you're not like a a doctoral student or something? And I was like, (laughs) no, I'm a citizen of New York City and I'd like to read a book, please. I'll sit here and read it and then give it back to you. Like, I don't have to take it away with me. Like, what's the deal? They were just really aggressive about it. This is so funny. This rings so true for what I know of Hannah because when we were first becoming friends, she heard the first thing and she was like, I would like you to read this Raymond Chandler book, please. So this feels, yeah, it's extremely on brand for you. Yeah, it's very important to me and I like to read other people's thoughts on things that I like. <laughs> One thing also, I don't know if this bumped you guys, but when I was reading it too and he's he has that like short conversation, Sam has that short conversation with his dad um is he's they say he says where are you and he says the new york public library and that's all they they never say like in bryant park like the famous one like he he, you know new york has hundreds of libraries and then (laughs) and then dennis quaid is like looking for him and is like i can't find him because of the snow um and also just like knows exactly where to be like in new york and that was something where i was just like as a new yorker i was like i feel like you could give him a cross street like that might be (laughs) yeah i'm at the public library on 42nd okay yes and the book makes a point of like sam being like we walked from 68th to 42nd we cannot walk back that's crazy like it gives him enough geographic knowledge that he should then say this is exactly where i am it's time for me to look really stupid Mm -hmm. you live in chicago it's okay no no different topic (laughs) i I'm, i'm gonna stagger you with my stupidity you guys picked up on the fact that they were divorced in the movie? Yes. Yes. Cool. That's They really live nice in separate you. places. <laughs> which helps. Well, it's part of it is because he travels so much for his job that they couldn't make it work. Mm-hmm. And so that's like in the beginning of the movie, he's like in India, he's all over. Uh, but it's subtle. I don't think this is like something you should feel stupid about. It's definitely subtle. The book does a couple weird things with their divorce. I want to talk about it. One, so there's the there's the mini through line with Janet, the other climate scientist, where he's like, we are attracted to each other. I hope we can date someday. Once this climate problem is slightly resolved, I'll see you on the other side and maybe something will happen. Then when he goes to New York, he's like, well, nothing's going to happen because I'm probably going to die. Alas, to not getting to bone that lady, which is weird. <laughs> and that whole passage where he's like, here, I'm My wife now, and I are Anna. sharing some. Yeah, you have I to. I love read it. this passage. So okay. nuts. Here we go. Fucking crazy. <clears throat> There's a couple weird divorce passages. Thank God you're safe, Lucy said. And hearing those words, Jack had a realization. Divorce and separation do not end the marriages of people like this man and this woman. Nothing ends them. Not really. They were married forever, the two of them, in the blood of their beloved son. We're all right, Mom, Sam said carefully. That's right, boy. Never lie. Tell what part of the truth you must. All right made his dad's heart thunder with relief. 
Whatever was really happening to Sam and around him, Sam did not feel an enormous and an immediate danger. Okay, this is more kid stuff, but there's more divorce stuff on like the next page. Where's the divorce bit where he's like, we shared something that's so special it. that not even divorce can break and also divorces. I got it. It's, I got it's it. a weird I metaphor. Okay, thank you, Andrew. Do, do, do. I have to go, Jack told her. I have to do it. She nodded slightly. Jack wiped away her tears, tried to ignore his own. She gave him the steadiest, strongest, and bravest look he'd ever seen in her face. It made him proud of her, that look. It washed away years of disappointment and misunderstanding. She smiled a little, and he knew she was proud of him, of his bravery. He touched her cheek, her eyes closed. Only another divorcee could understand that gesture. For divorce is as mysterious as marriage, and the real life of couples is known only to couples a life that is lived through the medium of a secret language of gestures and coded sentences. He had touched her like that the first time he'd seen her, and it had made her close her eyes and press her cheek against his fingertips. Again, the first time you saw her? <laughs> like at a club and there's like blindfolds and they're just touching each other's faces. Like I'm so perturbed. Oh, weird. <laughs> Continue, Again, Andrew. standing beside their marriage bed, two trembling kids. He had touched her like that, and in the gesture there, and in the gesture, there had been the shadow and promise of pleasure in the night, the promise that would one day become that precious soul up there in the land of chaos. This time, when she leaned gently against his fingers, it said, "I remember all that has come before, and I approve what you're doing now. And if you give up your life for our son." I will reverence your spirit until my own days are done. There could be no more profound moment than this between two people who are snared in the sliver cords of marriage, whether they be divorced or not. For it to circle back at the end to, and remember, this is all about my personal opinion on divorce. I'm, I'm, I, this is a reactionary opinion about divorce. To go big and go, and the souls of us, and the, and the eternalness of us, and that's why divorce is fucking bullshit. Yeah, I mean, that, and they're getting back together at the end of this story, 100%. For, there's so much weird stuff with Lucy where she's like, what a brave, beautiful man. He's a real man. And I, a very successful doctor, yes. just want to be his wife and have our kid. And that's the only thing that really matters in light of this stuff. Uh, fucking sick. Hate it. Bad. <laughs> Not good. Stryber doesn't seem to be divorced. Just, I just checked. I don't like the part where she decides she's going to die with the little boy. I mean, in general, I don't really like it. Um, I think it's sort of like mm, minimizing women somehow to mm -hmm. say like her great duty in life is to die for no reason for some boy who isn't hers and who is going to die anyway, because she's a woman and a mother is how that feels to me. And the message that she gives to pass on to her husband, which is not in the movie, is this like, I had to read a little boy a bedtime story. He'll understand. And it's like, ew, girl, like you have value too. What are you doing? Wait, wait. But isn't it good that she doesn't leave the cancer child? Yeah, alone in the in end, the it's good because they happen to get rescued. But like, I don't know. It's a little I don't like... think it's good to leave that kid even if they don't get rescued. I'm just going to go on the record with that. The, maybe this is crass and horrid of me, but I think the thing to do is when it seems like nobody's coming, 
bundle that fucking kid up and take him with you on a snowplow because that's better than choosing to die. That's choosing life, even if it's risky and limiting and it may not work and whatever. Like to just say like, well, we're just going to stay here and die. Like try some, I don't know, is... I'm also like, oh, yeah. I hope that little boy makes it. But like, there's a lot of other kids who could use her help in the world. Yeah. Is that bad? No, I think you're right. I think the, the thing they're insinuating here is that like the kid is too sick to travel and will die if they do that. But I do, I will say, Hannah, to your point, there is a trend here where like the men are heroes who like go out in the in the storm to fight and save. And the women are just like sick and chilling. Like Laura is also just like, yeah. I cut my leg and I'm sick. And that's her whole plot. Blood poisoning. Like poor girl. Yeah, exactly. Um, So it definitely, I mean, I think what you're feeling is that like the men are heroes and the women are like sort of housewives and I think that's true in this book Mm -hmm. um but I do think I do agree Andrew like I do think our stand you know you shouldn't leave a kid it's very noble (laughs) to not leave that boy like of course of course I just Lizzie you are right I think I wish she was more active in her own rescue she doesn't have any agency at all here zero and to the point where the book is like God saved her, actually. <laughs> Not even the bravery of man or that her nurse friend was like, you have to go back for her or something. No, she's like praying. And the guy shows up and is like, I have an ambulance. I'm here to take you out of here. And she's like, oh, God did this. Wow. Yeah. The book gets weirdly religious at a couple of points that threw me. This guy's political perspective in general really hard to nail down. I don't mean to be negative on this stuff. I'm sorry, you guys. No, I started being negative about this from the very beginning. I was like, this book does not pass the Bechdel test and it hates women. (laughs) So you were, yes, actually you saying this makes me feel like I'm not like- Look, I've read books that hate women more than this book, but there is something happening here that is not pro-women. I I think that one of the things that made me- not pick up on that well i mean i definitely picked up on the fact that the women were passive uh but i i i do feel like jack's journey in the movie and in the book feels sort of pointless and frivolous to the point where like he we're watching his very capable son who he knows is a super genius fend for himself and jack is mr stay inside stay inside and for him to go, but I must find my son, he seems to be the one acting in the most unreasonable, crazed way to me in both pieces of media. And so I think that kept me from clocking some of the sexism because it was like, oh, th- this this guy is so obviously in the wrong and sort of and sort of misguided. I think that's a very fair way to read it, but I will say there is a page, I wrote, I wrote it down because I was like, oh my God. On page 80, um, the Jack's inner monologue is like, he leaned up against the wall. He wished he had his Indiana Jones fedora. <laughs> so they're absolutely yeah. setting him up as the male hero, Indiana Jones, who is like, his bravery will help him save his family. So I think your reading of like, hey, uh, the president is going to is gonna die and like he needs you here to like, explain to him what he should do to save millions of lives. Like that 
that is a fair reading because that should be what he's doing. Instead, he is like, you know, choosing his family, which like, you know, if the world's ending, do what you gotta. Um, but he is absolutely, right. there is a whole genre of action movies. I, I don't know if you guys have seen San Andreas. Um, that is an incredible movie where The Rock, who is the only person who can help people stuck in San Andreas, abandons his post <laughs> to save his son. Um, and so and so it's a similar story of like, you, you actually, I understand you want to save this one person. You know, you could be saving millions of people by like guiding the government on like what to do next, uh, which is sort of, it feels like the train problem. It's like, I, there's no right answer here, I guess. Um, but, but I do think this book doesn't think that he's making a selfish choice. This book thinks he's Indiana Jones. That's fair. I forgot about the Indiana Jones thing. Yeah. I think this book thinks that like you simply must save your boy. He's your blood. And that's the most important thing. Hannah, they're married forever in Sam's blood. So <laughs> yeah. 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 It's um... there's also a weird part where like one of the cabinet members is a woman. And there's a part where Jack's like, boy, she's really got it going on. Like there's just a weird shit where like she He's believes him and yeah. it's like we have to do things to like help people. But his attitude towards her isn't like, thank God this powerful woman believes me and is doing the right thing. His attitude is very much like, great pair of legs on that broad. Like there's just something to it that feels mm, not good. I have a passage about a woman uh, that I hated. The passage <laughs> I hated, not the woman. Uh, so I'll, I'll jump on I'll jump on this bandwagon. Uh, of course, <laughs> when when is this even happening? Oh yes. Uh, Maria Gomez. Let's talk about Maria. <sighs> In the hospital, uh, there's a woman who works there named Maria Gomez, and she gets this. Who, I uh, just want to hop in really fast. Jack's boss, his last name is Gomez, but these two characters are not married or related. And oh, I was... and now you think that's weird? Now you think that's weird. Well, because this so, guy has done so much work on names... You I thought it pull- mattered that they had the same last name. You can try to prove, or you can try to pull that on a separate episode. Hope okay. I forgot about the red dragon thing, but it is the same damn episode. Okay, you're right. You're right. I'm a hypocrite. I'm sorry. Okay, you're right. Great. I hear you, Here we go. and I'm think, and I'm listening, and I apologize. Yeah, uh, I'll ruminate on accepting that. <laughs> the in the hospital, we get this passage. <clears throat> Footsteps joined in as a nurse moved past a television anchored to the ceiling of a small waiting area. Traffic in New Mexico has been moving smoothly since the president struck a deal to forgive all Mexican debt in exchange for opening the border. She stopped a moment and watched images of a truly gigantic amount of traffic crossing at Laredo, at Juarez, at Tijuana. All of it was going south into the world that Maria Gomez had left so many years ago. Her education, her prosperity, her pride, all of them were part of her American life and her hard-won citizenship. So she was angry at this storm, to see it ruining her adopted country, which had given her so much and really made her life worth living. She remembered Chihuahua City all too well, with its dirty cops who would rape you as soon as look at you, and its poverty and disease and its miserable few hospitals, where only God knew if the drugs in use were even the real thing. Shuddering, she walked on. As she approached the pediatric ward, she heard Dr. Lucy's voice softly reading to one little patient who had been left behind. And then it's just Lucy's story. That was the whole Maria Gomez arc. This is my least favorite part of the book. 
just to be like American exceptionalism, even though they fucked up so bad climate wise. Per- that's a perfect encapsulation of what I am upset about. I don't know about what's going on in this Mexican city. I I can't say whether that is accurate or not, but even if it is, the fact that this is an American author framing this as everything that was bad about her was Mexico. Everything that's become good about her is America, even though America is currently screwing her over. If that This part of the book was like actually shocking to me and <laughs> made me put it down. Um, I, it really rings for that Trump speech where he says they're not sending their best. Um, it feels like that, like it evokes a lot of the same like fears about Mexico of drugs, of, of you know, shady cops, of all these things. And I, um, I thought it was a pretty shocking thing to throw in that's like not a main plot point in any way. It's like Americans are fleeing to Mexico, but then you have to go. And by the way, Mexico is a bad place. It's just like it feels like, again, why am I hearing this from you? Is this an old man? (laughs) Like what is what is happening? Uh, The movie does not have this opinion in the same way the book is so heavy handed about it. The best thing about the movie, the best thing is that at the end, the president formerly vice president, gives a speech about how countries that we once referred to as the third world are now our saviors and we are grateful for them and and and, and whatnot. And that's in the book, presumably because it's pulled from the script. But uh, this is directly in violation with that idea. Now, I'm aware Mexico is not a third world country. I just mean the concept of those that we used to judge and other globally are now people that we must fight for survival with. This is totally at odds with that. Yeah, this part of the book sucks. <laughs> I think in general, the treatment of Mexico sucks. And this idea that like, there was a massive storm that is visible everywhere, right? Everybody's aware that this is happening. And the Mexican government is like, actually, fuck you guys, don't come. Felt so ungenerous to me that like the president has to make this debt deal when it feels like mm-hmm. it should be, he calls and says like, please my people are dying and mexico goes of course right we are not monsters come in we will figure it out uh, surely there's somewhere you can help each other down the line but we're not gonna let millions of people die for politics and the book and the movie to a lesser extent kind of imply that like they might maybe they would <laughs> which is cruel uh, that's a mean-spirited perspective to take uh, striber i think dislikes all politicians um hold on let me find the passage i want to talk about uh, that's yeah. the part at the end where somebody comes in and looks at the vice president now the president and is like i thought he was a weak sack of shit but now i see that grief has changed him and he is a brave strong leader now. and they register it in a moment this transformed creature before me humble but strong uh yeah so <laughs> yeah uh, on 141 we get this passage that says uh Jack didn't want to look these men in the eye. This is when he's already come to them. They turn him away. Now they're coming to him in a time of disaster. Uh, Jack didn't want to look these men in the eye because he knew how painful that would be for them. But part of him was compelled to, to see the guilt. Between the left, which had always used environmental problems to push for more control of business, and the right, which had rejected environmental reality so that business as usual could continue, everybody had missed the point. I think this is the strongest argument for this being a conservative book, uh, because to, to my mind, and I'm known to bring my own politics onto the podcast, but to my mind, the difference between the liberal and conservative mindset at their core 
is sort of the belief that people can be good and people can be virtuous, right? Like the this idea that Schreiber is looking through Jack at both sides of the political divide and going, the conservatives denied reality for their own gain. The liberals used reality to further their ulterior motives. It doesn't allow for anyone to actually want and hope for the betterment of the world, except for Jack Hall. And it, it, to my mind, that's just, it comes up in almost every left-right issue, is the right is going, you don't actually want that, you have some goal. Uh, when sometimes it really is just that people want to make things better. So I read that and I was like, Whitley Stryber, conservative, might care about the environment, but doesn't believe in the inherent goodness of man. For a story that is posturing that it is about the goodness and the resilience of humanity, that we mm -hmm. help each other, that we work together, that we deserve to survive based on those factors. I think probably what happened, Stryber and Bell write this book. Uh, I haven't read it. I assume that the original book is very, very nonfiction-y, even if wrong, right? That it's going, this will happen, this will happen. This is what we have to worry about. So maybe doesn't have such a political tilt to it. Emmerich makes this movie with an original plot that takes inspiration from the book, and he puts his own sauce on it, where he goes, and through this we find the goodness of man. We find commonality with our neighbors. And then Stryber comes back to it in the form of the novelization, and that doesn't square at all with his actual beliefs about the world. Yeah, that sounds likely to me, just based yeah. on the reading of this. Um, like, the end of the book feels a little hopeless, sort of, to me. That, like, well, mm -hmm. we made it through this, but it's not going to get better, right? It's all hardship from here forward. And, like, maybe we have each other, but that's not really good. The end of the movie is very moving to me of, like, not only did Sam and his little cadre survive, but, like, hundreds of people survived in New York City by coming together and figuring it out to the best of their... Like, that's very powerful to me that, like, there's there's hope, <laughs> you know? Like, Yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Ahead. I think we're missing that scene altogether in this book, um, which for me is, like, the when they're in the helicopter and they're seeing all the people who survived... Because um, for mm -hmm. me, I think that the book felt at the end very rushed. I mean, you have the sequence with the the wolves, which it only ends 10 pages before the end. And the if I, in my head, I'm like, there's so much more that has to happen. Like Jack has to find Sam. Like there's like, <laughs> there's so much more that has to happen before this book is over. And so I do think that they cut some of that part at the end, which I would say is the point of the title, again, that we're talking about, like the future is bright. Mm -hmm. um, and... And so you're just sort of left with like, oh, wow, I just read about how everyone died instead of like, here's what we're taking from this experience. They so He sort of glosses very quickly over like the helicopters see Sam and then they all see like candles in windows. But it's different when it's like people coming out onto the roofs being rescued mm -hmm. <laughs> has a different feeling to it. And the book takes such a detour to show you Tom the cop's death with all the people mm -hmm. he brought out of the library. A, a, a passage I do like, uh, I'm not going to read it, but it essentially boils down to they are in the, the eye of the storm or the false summit, you know, where they think they're in the clear and Tom and, and all the people he let out are like, wow, this is awesome. We're, we survive. And then they just freeze solid in, in instance. A lot of descriptions of the weather in this book, I thought were really cool. There's the mm -hmm. part 
very late where Jack sees all of the uh, ice crystals floating in the air. And yeah. because the, there, there's colder uh, weather happening at, at, at some higher altitude than he is. And it basically becomes this thing of, oh, those are all going to fall on me soon or stab me to death or something. Uh, just a cool image that the movie didn't have. So I thought that was that was kind of an accomplishment. I do like the book makes it very clear, like when Sam is on the boat and he realizes that there's a downdraft about to come, it talks about like how the quality of light has gotten really weird. And it just, it's too quiet. It's too still and something, and like the light's kind of yellowy and strange. And that's what clues him into the fact that they're in mortal danger. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's a fun little touch that makes me feel it in a different way and appreciate that like Sam's smart. He pays attention when his dad talks and he is helping his friends survive with his knowledge. As much as we bashed the Dennis Quaid talking about divorce passage, uh, I do kind of like its spiritual sequel when he runs into, he finally catches up to Sam and uh, waxes poetic about the nature of family. Sam was walking towards him and then their arms came around one another and the blood of the hall sang joy to the world. And maybe even the good God above smiled that this love of father for son had defied the worst storm in 10,000 years to declare, I am a love beyond death. I am stronger than death. And when we part, it will be in my time when I say the day has come for the old man to step into memory and the young one to lift up his own son. There was crying then before the fire in the devastated city beneath the hard blue sky of a new day. That one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I thought, well, you know, whether they set this up in the book well or not, uh, I, I didn't necessarily feel like it was as strong as the movie, the building this bond between father and son. Uh, they nailed the payoff, the description of the payoff, real well. It's a little cheesy, but yeah, it's yes, but that good. that is that is I like that. I like how baroque <laughs> this this novel mm-hmm. is. Uh, I like that it's going. You know, I'm telling a story on a global scale. Let's let's let, amp up the melodrama. Yeah, I found it moving, even if it is a little like on the nose. Like I do, I find it really moving, and it is the payoff to this whole. I mean, okay, like Frank died so that <laughs> Jack could find his son. So I'm like, okay, yeah. like if a man is going to pay his life as the price for this you know reunion i want this reunion to be like juicy and heartfelt and like moving so i did find it moving yeah i the passage where they're walking through the library jack and jason looking for sam and there's a part where they find the door to the trustee's office where they all are and there's a part where the book says like if he opens the door and sam isn't there or if sam is dead He'll just like cry the worst howling pain howl, that anyone yeah. has ever heard in humanity's history. And I, I was like, that's powerful. That's punchy. I'm all in on the language of the book. The The content doesn't always work for me. But early on, I was feeling, oh, it's cheesy. It's uh, it's overwrought. And then late in the book, I was going, but what what deserves to be cheesy and overwrought more than the novelization of the day after tomorrow? Yeah. Uh, While we're talking about language, can I say one silly thing that I really enjoyed? (laughs) Of course. Um, Andrew, about your favorite character, uh, Gary, our Wall Street guy, one of my favorite things is that he keeps referring to $100 bills as C-notes. He's like, give me that C-note. And then at one point, he's like dabbing his eyes with C-notes. And it's just so funny because I don't, it took me a second to even know what that that would be. (laughs) 
Um, and I was just like, I like the idea that this is like all Wall Street is like, yeah, man, the like wild C notes that we're all chasing. Um, he's do- he's um, literally doing the Antonio Banderas in Assassin's GIF where he's pushing the money yeah. against his eyes. <laughs> it's when Gary dies, I, I had this bookmarked and I lost it, but there's a part where it says that, oh, here it is. Um, Gary's on the bus and it gets slammed by the water and he dies. Um, when Gary found himself on another very different bus, he hardly missed a beat. He kept bouncing on the bus to hell, bouncing and laughing amid the huddled, despairing shades of the evil dead. Pretty good. And and that that born out of uh, him deciding to start bouncing because he remembers being in grade school and and what must be the thing where when you hit a bump in the road you essentially try to launch as high as you can I think that must be what what he's referring yeah. to and then yeah he sort of uh, in a frenzy bounces himself through his own death as a comfort <laughs> maybe yeah that's a that's a passage that struck me. Shortly thereafter, there's a part where Sam like steps up to help people in the library and it says, um, but now here in this situation, he had found a calm place inside a place to go that could be counted on. He probably wouldn't have put it this way, but the fact was under the pounding pressure of this unprecedented situation, a good kid was becoming a good man, which I thought was pretty good. I'll accept the like conservative Christianity of this book for the occasional line where I'm like, mm, yeah, good kid, good man, pretty good. You know that stuff. Well, works for me on the whole. With with his seemingly Christian values and his hatred of the way we've treated the climate, do you think Stryber's favorite or least favorite movie is First Reformed? <laughs> um, favorite, but I don't think he really understands it. Yeah, what if we what if we what if we killed Republicans to better the earth? He's like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was gonna say, does anybody wanna talk about the wolf attack and how insane it feels in the book <laughs> compared to the Please, movie. please take point on this. Um, so my understanding um in the movie is that the wolf attack makes a little sense because you see the wolves you see the bronx zoo and all the animals are freaking out and this happens in the book too but the wolves aren't mentioned the animals are freaking out about being locked up because they can sense the storm well, lizzie i hate to break it to you the wolves are definitely mentioned are? as missing oh. and the zookeeper goes i don't want to fucking deal with that and walks away okay this is helpful this is, i must have missed that because then because we're in their pov when they go to the ship um, it feels like the wolves are just suddenly also there. Uh, but that is good to know if I missed that line uh, because I was just like, oh, what an odd thing that there would just suddenly be these wolves on a ship going through New York City. <laughs> but then, yeah, JD really steps up. And this is where I think the love triangle actually does pay off, that he's not some terrible, awful person, that he, you know, is it's it, it, it feels like this is coming out at the same time as like all kinds of like Twilight love triangle stuff. <laughs> and they're just like they do it in a way that's not so gross. So I do I do like that. Um, but the yeah, that's good to know that they pretense the wolves, because for me, when I was reading this, I was just like, OK, now there's wolves. <laughs> Yeah, the passage in which they're released isn't isn't really interesting enough to read, but but it is there. And I was at a zoo today running a race. Wow. Are, are there wolves at the zoo? <laughs> I've never heard of that. Some zoos. Okay. It just feels like it feels like animals that are in America just sort of 
out and you hear them in the woods, I feel like don't tend to be at our zoos. Like, it, it, mm. I, I've never gone to a zoo and seen one of the black bears that I also see pretty often. <laughs> well, the Seneca Park Zoo has wolves. The Toledo okay. Zoo has wolves. The Roger Williams Park Zoo has wolves. The North Carolina Zoo has wolves. Uh, the San Francisco Zoo, you guessed it, has wolves. Oh, my God. And Zoo America North American Wildlife Park in Hershey, Pennsylvania also has wolves. I'm so glad that I edit these because <laughs> I would not be able to recover from this. Just take this whole section out because I was like, the wolves never show up and apparently they do. So just... <laughs> I do like that in the wolves section, mm. one of the characters while they're on the boat looks down from some, some high catwalk on the boat, sees their human footprints that they made coming in and also wolf footprints. And there's a weird part. I, I think it's, uh, what's Sam's friend's name? The guy. Brian. Brian, there's a weird part where he goes, uh, oh, it's probably dogs. Dogs got to go somewhere in this. That's so nice. He's just not worried about it. And then the wolves show up and he's like, oh, no, a different kind of dog. Scary dog. (laughs) The wolf thing is such a like last act, like drama twist. That's not sure it's necessary. It is exciting. I do like that in the book, the wolves chase them into the library. Yes, that's really cool. So like when you're when you're with Jack and you don't know what's happened to Sam and his friends yet, you're like following footprints and then you're starting to see frozen wolves and you're like, oh no, maybe they didn't make it, but they did. That's that's all fun stuff. I gotta say, I love that once, once you're down to like the core eight people in the library, nobody dies. Yes. Nobody in that group dies. Huge relief to me. Really appreciate it. I don't need JD to get eaten by wolves to like raise the stakes. The stakes are high enough. I'm glad everybody makes it. I want to know if JD's little brother made it. They just stop talking about that. Yeah, we just don't get to know. I mean, because the characters don't know. I know. I hope that little boy's okay. I do think that if his brother lives, it's too convenient. And if his brother doesn't live, it's too sad. So I'd rather they just drop it. (laughs) I just don't know. Than devastate me, yeah. Does it rub up against the we don't like how much of a hero Jack is thing if I say I really like the part where he catalogs ice? I do too. Like the first chapter of the book? That no, part? no, it's it's 30 pages in. Let me find it. Oh, okay. So he basically gets back from this expedition that starts the movie where, you know, the ice cracks and he almost dies. Mm-hmm. And whatever his job is, who knows? He's got to catalog a bunch of dang ice. And so he gets back to his lab and it says, <clears throat> he surveyed the boxes. And that was it for Jack Hall. All time, all space. All commitments, all needs, disappeared in an instant. It became him and his ice, beginning and end of the world. He measured, he prepared, he moved, he tagged. At some indeterminate time, Frank and Jason went to lunch. Later, somebody held a turkey club under his nose until he yelled at them for getting contaminants near his ice. Later, he heard whispers concerning pizza. All he knew was that this project could not be completed until this ice was in order and secure, and that was going to happen as fast as possible because Jack Hall had a point to prove, and he was damn well going to prove it. As far as Jack was concerned, he'd been working for about half an hour when Tom Gomez, the director of NOAA, came striding into the freezer. 
I know you have an innate talent for rubbing people the wrong way, Jack, but why, for the love of God, did you have to aggravate the Vice President of the United States? That Then there's a whole conversation. The thing I like about that is it ends with him realizing that he's been cataloging ice for like 14 hours straight and that even though he started doing it in the evening, he's late to drive uh, Jake Gyllenhaal to the train. And there's a nice passage later in the book mirroring that single-mindedness where Jack thinks to himself, I have a single-mindedness. It has led me to doggedly pursue my son, even though it doesn't really make sense. And it could also be my downfall because it's some line like men who are able to shut their base desires out, like, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. temperature, food, water, uh, that can kill you. And so this thing that has been my strength professionally, personally, could be the thing that freezes me to death. I, I I thought it was nice writing. Yeah, I liked it. Very scientisty. I like. I think Jack Hall successfully reads as a real scientist in the world. I think Dennis Quaid in the movie. I'm like, I believe it. This seems like the kind of guy who's going to Antarctica to do science and then comes home and puts on a sweater. Feels yes. right. Yes. In the movie, they they give lip service to the fact that he's so intense, so dedicated. There's that whole p- part of the his assistants explaining that to uh, Janet and Mm -hmm. it doesn't really go anywhere. Like, yes, he is, he is dedicated. He does find his son. I guess that's what we're meant to connect, but Mm. they show us what that means professionally in the book, which is fun. Yeah. And I think that also Jack is obsessed with his data and the ice is just giving him more data, which feels critical because he's trying to save everyone's life. So um, (laughs) I, I liked it too. It It was one of those moments where I was like, oh, okay, like I believe someone associated with science has had a part of this, even if it wasn't true. I think Jake is believable as the son of Dennis Quaid and Celia Ward. Good job, casting directors. Just want to toss that out there. That's a great call. That's a really great call. Pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, speaking of casting, and I don't mean to get back into the like <laughs> woman stuff, but did you notice that they make uh, Laura a blue-eyed person who I don't believe Emmy Rossum is and they talk about it a lot they keep going like about how Mm. like fair she is and all her beautiful blue eyes and I was just like because this is a novelization we know the actor so (laughs) Mm -hmm. it just felt I don't know if this has come up when you guys are reading other novelizations of them like changing the physical appearance of a character uh but that kind of threw me for a second it also there's a lot of passages where people look at Laura, especially when she's sick, and they're like this beautiful angel faced girl. Can you believe she might die? And it's like because she's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> because what? Because she's young, maybe. But like the book really feels like it's saying because she's a hottie, she shouldn't possibly be ill. There's a part where Sam thinks not her, she's just a kid. But meanwhile, he was just talking about kissing her in his boner, and so it's just like okay, but is, he, <laughs> is she a kid who's too young to die, or is she your love interest? It's just it's a very interesting. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little infantilizing. (laughs) It's also very frustrating to me that she refuses to acknowledge that she's been hurt when, like, obviously she's about to put strain on the group and the thing to do is to admit it and seek help sooner. (laughs) That's always, like, a rude position, I think, to put women in, to be like, oh, no, I'm but a frail waif who cannot help myself and I'm going to cause trouble. (laughs) It's it's very Mm -hmm. 2004 movie to... Uh, have the scene where he kisses her and 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 in the book it's saying 
uh, he, he did it, you know, not knowing if it was okay, but then he could tell it was okay. <laughs> the, the retroactive assault justification used to really be a thing. He just seems really uncertain about it when he does it in the book. He kisses her and then he has thoughts like, it turns out it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Pretty good. Hannah Blackman. Oh, one more political point. There's uh-huh. a part at the very end of the book where um, they're in the Wendy's, Jack and Jason, and he makes little burgers. And there's like one little line where Jason's like, I'm a vegetarian for environmental reasons. <laughs> and the book kind of goes like... Because an ex-girlfriend made me one. Yeah. The book kind of goes like, lame, you dumb dork, being a vegetarian, <laughs> you dumb idiot, in a way that felt like... But that is good for the environment, isn't it? And it's also <laughs> it odd because they're like, doing? you need to make personal decisions to save. Like, it's like, yeah. it's like, okay, so if it's not being a vegetarian, like, what is the personal decision <laughs> that I could have made for free from my home? Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just kind of another funny little political thing where I was like, what's the attitude here? What is it? I don't know. That was, that was uh, one of the things I found to be a little sexist was that I felt like they were playing on a stereotype of your crazy vegan ex-girlfriend, mm-hmm. you know, going, yeah. I'm, I'm vegetarian because uh, my ex-girlfriend made me be vegetarian, but now that she's not around, uh, time to get back to what boys eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really hate to read a novelization and have the the growing horror realization of, oh, this is sexist. Um, yes. Can I add one, just since we're back here and I don't, <laughs> one thing that makes me crazy whenever I read it or see it um, that this does, and just to quickly uh, read it, uh, that I, I noticed this does and I was so sad about it. Um, this is when they're, she's sick and she is like asleep and he is noticing she's sick. <laughs> he says he went he went to her started to wake her up then stopped himself even here with her face all dirty and her makeup not even a memory she was almost heartbreakingly beautiful <laughs> my hate, least yeah, favorite thing it. is when a woman is still pretty despite not wearing a makeup because she's not like other girls <laughs> she doesn't need makeup <laughs> she's to naturally be an angel beauty yeah she suddenly has blue eyes because of european beauty standards <laughs> It's just, it's it's like very heavy handed. Um, so I just thought while we were on the topic, uh, that is a line that made me go, ooh. <laughs> yep. I'm glad you read it. Thank you. Now I am going to take the opposite stance on this. If I ever saw a woman without makeup on, I'd go postal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm wearing makeup for this podcast because guys, you really, you know, if you hear my voice without makeup, it'll be a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> How will you know that I'm heartbreakingly beautiful? And meanwhile, she's dying. Like, I have to be clear in that scene, she's dying. Yeah, she's very unwell. But yeah, no, beautiful lines about humanity, not great lines about women. That's my takeaway. We touched on this a little bit with, with Hannah talking about the burger, but one of the things that the novelization adds is that they seek shelter and they find what they think is a door and they fall through the exhaust grate of a restaurant's... Uh, a grill and then they just make it says he throws 10 burgers on the grill and they start eating which is a a fun little you can you can totally understand why it got cut from the movie um i mean it is the book i think makes it very clear how cold it is and that it's like actively blisteringly cold and it feels very real the movie because it's a bunch of movie stars they're like taking off their gear taking off their gloves yes all the time so you like see their faces and i get it but it is really funny when Dennis Quaid like comes out of that like pile of snow, 
like jacket open and he's like, I think it's over. And I'm like, it's still negative 10 degrees at least, right? It's still <laughs> fucking cold, man. The the movie did make me think of uh, when I was in college, I took a, a stage design course, you know, where you're like designing sets and stuff. And so we were meant to, or we were made to present a lot of concepts that we would not actually build. And one time I presented The Tempest, but it took place in Antarctica. And my <laughs> professor just reamed me out so bad in front of the class and was just saying, are you telling me that all of these people are in giant parkas and you essentially can't see any of their faces? <laughs> and I looked at her and I went, yes, it's transgressive or something like that. I was like, it's surprising. It's conceptual. <laughs> Hannah Blackman. Yes. You are going to the movies, or you just did. You saw a great film, and you heard it was based off of a nonfiction book. Turns out mm -hmm. it's a film theory book. You pick it up, and it's called A Cut is the Softest Kiss by Andrew Overby. <laughs> Apparently a cornerstone of modern cinema. Mm -hmm. In it, you are recommended as one of his inspirational books that, that got him to where he is. The novelization of The Day After Tomorrow by Whitley Stryber. Do you think you would enjoy reading it? Um, I think if I was coming off a seminal film text and it had recommended this book to me and I picked up this book, I would be pretty pissed off. Because <laughs> I assume that it was just kind of like listed in the bibliography as like an important text that inspired you. Perhaps not contextualized as to like what brought you from that book. Mm -hmm. Um. So I would be a little mad to read this book, which is not great. And, you know, I read it in like two days. It wasn't really hard or painful for me. But mm, as we've mm. discussed, it like is a little clunky. It has some unpleasant stuff in it, including some sexism that I it just rubs me the wrong way. And it gave me deep, deep existential anxiety and dread. So didn't like that about it. So, no, I, I wasn't super hot on this one. I wouldn't, as a novel, I'm not sure it's super successful divorced from the movie. It's it's just like the beginning is so hard to get through, I think, because it's all mm -hmm. over the place that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I probably would have given up on it myself at some point. So yeah, this one's not great. And then I would write a letter to Mr. Andrew Overby, who I assume is like Professor Emeritus at Harvard these days, which still exists, thank God, and say like, <laughs> sir... Fuck you for having me read this one. You would write a letter, just to be clear, to say that. Yeah. yeah. I would write a letter. Yeah, write a, letter. <laughs> a strongly worded letter. Hmm. Mm, Lizzie Bryce. You, you ready, ready for this hypothetical situation? You are a heartbreakingly beautiful young woman <laughs> trapped in a library. As usual. <laughs> of course. And it's a bummer, okay? Um, you're not feeling very well. And you can't help with all the carrying, lifting, and other survival stuff because you're just so, so delicate. Yeah. So unwell. Goes without saying. You have to sit on a sofa by a fire and, and relax. And the the guys in your life, nice guys, you could date any of them, really, start bringing you things to occupy your time. <laughs> and one of them brings you The Day After Tomorrow by Whitley Stryber. If you read this book, are you going to date the guy who gave it to you? 
Ooh, good question. Um, I don't know if I would date him, but I would give him a keychain that said "fuck the patriarchy," uh, as Jake famously uh, had. No, I, I think I would be very concerned about the attitudes towards women of the person who was like, "This is my favorite book." Um, but I would pass the. I will say when I was reading this, to your point, it's not a hard read. It feels like maybe it's written at like a middle school, high school level. Um, but it's very like, it's very engaging because a lot of stuff is happening. The action's really clear. The weather stuff is really fun. Um, so it would pass the time while I'm waiting for Dennis Quaid to save us. Um, in a way that, that would, that, you know, I assume there's no TV since, uh, the world's ending. So I would need something juicy Mm -hmm. and I think it would be juicy. (laughs) Very good. Very good. Andrew Overby. Hello. Hello. You are, are... Can I help? I want to do one. <laughs> yes. Oh, if you want to do one, oh, Lizzie, please. please do one. Oh yes, my gosh. Yes, yes, yes. I'm just jumping in. Um, I, uh, Andrew, I love it. you are yeah. a wolf. <laughs> you are, oh. you have just escaped the Bronx Zoo um, because you feel a storm is coming and you mm-hmm. have found a Russian ship. And in that Russian ship, there are many rooms, but there is also a rec room where there is a game of Yahtzee and (laughs) a coffee machine and the day after tomorrow (laughs) as a wolf. The film, a DVD of the film you must mean. Oh, I mean the book, the book, the book novelization. Oh, the book, the uh, the coming global geostorm. (laughs) Yes, uh, it is Moonfall the book and you have the option. (laughs) You have the option as a with your wolf paws to make a cold cup of coffee to play Yahtzee or to read this book. Which are you going to do? And I'm so close to death that I can only do one. Yeah, a wolf's life is not okay. very long, and it's cold out. I would read the book. Overall, positive on the book. Ha- took me a long time to read. Hannah, you really illuminated why that was so for me. As the cast gets pared down, even though I like these backstories for the minor characters, it's so much easier to get through the book when there are fewer characters. Uh, it took me forever to read the first half, whiz through the second half pretty fast, as usual, as is sort of my normal thing. Didn't pick up on all of the horrible sexism because I am an unwilling sleeper cell of the patriarchy <laughs> due to my social programming that I'm trying to buck. But uh, I. Your heart uh, the, is in the, the right place, honey, and that's what matters. The micro is ugly. The micro is. Uh, sexist, racist, even a little xenophobic, which is crazy to say about this story. The macro of all of the passages about what's happening to the Earth, how we got here, where it's going, I I just liked how operatic it was, how unnecessarily, frivolously overgrown the prose were. Uh, by the end, I I felt like a, a, a huge orchestra was crescendoing as as Jack and Sam reunited. The book got me in in some regard to buy into this this heinously heightened emotional reality, which I I think is a feat in its own right. So overall, very positive on it, with reservations. Would recommend. Lizzie yeah. Bryce. Oh, sorry. I hope your wolf yeah. friends love hearing about. I want to know what the pack says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the pack, of course, 
not hungry at all. We were doing great. We are just a book club <laughs> looking for our next fix. You got a big bite of JD, so you're fine. Yeah. The book, it, it must also be said, is very uh, fixated on ships. Not only do does a ship hit the Statue of Liberty in addition, I think they say two ships hit the Statue of Liberty, and mm-hmm. then we, of course, have the ship that much of the plot happens on. But then there's a whole passage, one of his overwrought passages about Earth, where he goes, Earth used to be an ocean liner where everyone was having a great fucking time. But now Earth is like an ocean liner taken on water where it's still usable, but people are scrambling for their lives. And I liked the passage, but I was thinking this guy writes so much about ships and stoplights. He needs to learn a couple more nouns. (laughs) Well, what is a metaphor Mm. without a ship? Truly. Totally. Yeah, they capture I can't so come much. up with one. No. <laughs> Lizzie Bryce, what do you do? Where do you do it? And why? Um, like in the world. Yeah, oh definitely. Not <laughs> not like day to day life. Yeah. Not not how do you get ready in the morning. I mean, but I you have can tell that us too. that too. I have that too. Um yeah, absolutely. Well thank you so much, Andrew and Hannah, for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Also one of my first novelizations. So I feel like I've dipped my toe into this big world. You can find my work at lizziebrice.com. Um, I'm at Lizzie Bryce on Instagram. If you're into a uh, feminist horror, that is my jam. So um I would love to chat with anyone who is excited about that world. Um, this is this this being sort of parallel to that, but <laughs> but in the same sphere, you know. Or I would love to read a horror novelization that had a pro feminism bent <laughs> that we have not encountered yet. I would. I'm like, should I read Whitley's vampire book? It, would that I I might do it next. I'll report back. <laughs> yeah, let us know how that sucker is. Most people. Uh, when they come on the podcast, they say something like, oh, I'd never read a novelization before, and that their tone implies, and I never will make this mistake again. I love the the phrasing of, it was nice to read one of my first novelizations. (laughs) Wow, how beautiful. An optimism akin to that found at the end of the film, the day after tomorrow. Yes. The end of the film is hopeful and optimistic. Yes. Yes. And I also, I love movies so much. I would spend, yeah, spend hours reading movies. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, we may make you do it again. Please. I would be so honored. Yeah. I can't say enough that this has been, like, I love nothing more than homework. (laughs) And I was like, with my highlighter being like, ooh, this is like the most fun homework that I'm going to get to bring and share with my friends. So thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. To our listeners, please do go to our Patreon, switching up the order. It's patreon.com slash authorized pod. Also, review our podcast, subscribe to it, rate it. And as usual, I'm going to close out the episode by reading a passage from a classic piece of literature. Please do tweet at authorized pod if you think that you know what this is from. Sam approached the fire, ready to throw more books on. No, Judith gasped. Don't throw that one. It's a new release I've had on hold for months. Sam looked down at it. Really? I haven't even heard of it. Oh, believe me, said Judith. Pretty soon everyone's going to be talking about the Jane Austen Book Club. Good night. Incredible. My favorite character, Judith, is back again. (laughs) It's the worst thing about this dystopian reality is that 
if 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 the new Ice Age came in 2004, we would never get the film, the Jane Austen book club, based off the hit novel. That would be devastating. As devastating as the whole planet disintegrating. Yeah, what a loss. In the spirit of The Day After Tomorrow, a movie that is based off of a nonfiction climate panic book. <laughs> Hannah and Lizzie, I'm going to have you compete against each other today to tell me what movie was based on this nonfiction book title. <laughs> I'll give you the title and you'll tell me okay. what movie came out of this nonfiction book. Does that make sense? Yeah. Excited. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if you think you know it, buzz in with your first name and take a stab. Our first title, Bringing Down the House, a nonfiction book called Bringing Down the House, inspired what movie? And and it's not the movie. It's not Bringing, bringing Down the House. <laughs> and it's not the movie Bringing Down the House. Okay. Hmm. Lizzie, a good thing to know is I often put the hardest one first. Just to okay, get it this is way. good to know. <laughs> think of what else a house could be. Right, I'm going politics. I'm trying to think. Yes. Um, is it well? There's the documentary with AOC called "Bringing Down the House," but that's not it. That is not it, okay. and everyone's <laughs> on the wrong track. So I'll just tell you, <laughs> this first one is "Bringing Down the House" inspired the film Twenty One, the Kevin Spacey, I'm assuming, card counting movie. Yeah. Yes, I have seen yeah. it. It's card counting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this makes sense. Mm-hmm. Up next, mm-hmm. and not nearly as challenging. What movie was based on this nonfiction book? The Orchid Thief. I'm trying to think of what movies are based on books. Like Arrival or... (laughs) This feels like this should be kind of obvious. Like my brain was like, well, of course it's... And then gave me nothing. Well, keep in mind, Lizzie, that it's not exactly like an Arrival or a Harry Potter or something that's based on a book. It's like The Day After Tomorrow where this guy wrote a climate panic book about mm-hmm. a real disaster he thought was coming. And then Hollywood went, what if we made a movie out of that? I'm going to add a column for Andrew to get points in this game. Because I think <laughs> yes. he's crushing us. I think he's winning. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. The Orchid Thief is, of course, a uh, nonfiction book by Susan Orlean. And Charlie Kaufman found it so hard to adapt that he instead made a movie about himself trying to adapt it called Adaptation. Oh, oh. this makes sense. Fun. Great movie. Up next, what movie was based on this nonfiction book? The subtitle, Queen Bees and Wannabes. Oh, Mean Girls? Hannah. (laughs) Lizzie Bryce, it is, of course, Mean Girls. Yay. All right. I feel a small sense of redemption now that I've gotten one. (laughs) Up next, what movie was based off of this nonfiction title, the subtitle, A Memoir of the Cuban Missile Crisis? Hannah. Hannah Blackman. 13 Days. The name of the book is 13 Days, A Memoir of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the film that resulted from it was 
Missiles of October. There's also a movie called 13 Days, you son of a bitch. Hannah Blackman. <laughs> I researched this and I designed this slide to fuck you. Yeah, well, you did. I wanted to I want to let you know 13 Days the film is based off of a different Cuban Missile Crisis book and they stole the title of this one because they thought it was cool. <laughs> yeah, it's a good title. Fuck you. Hannah's Fine. making the meanest face I've ever seen her make. Because it was a trick. That was a mean trick it on me trick. personally. Because I've read 13 Days, a memoir of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I've seen the movie 13 Days, and the movie Missiles of October is a little hard to find. It's been a while since I've pulled a legit trick, so <laughs> just think back on the months of not tricks that you had. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Up next. It feels a little personal. Definitely was. Up next. <laughs> What movie resulted from this nonfiction book with the subtitle A Town, A Team, and a Dream? Um, what's that football movie? You could possibly take a cue from the slide itself, which depicts what, if anyone wants to say? What is on the slide? Right, the Northern Lights. Um, it's like, oh, it's so close. It's so close. Oh, Hannah, Hannah. Hannah Blackman. Friday Night Lights. Yes, I, of course, gave you some night lights in the form of the Aurora Borealis because the answer Good is work. Friday Night Lights, a town, a team, and a dream. <laughs> mm. Good work. Is that a movie and not just a show? It's, yeah. I didn't know that. It was a Peter Berg movie first, and then it became a television show. The more you know. Mm. Up next, you get it. <laughs> I Heard You Paint Houses. Hannah. Hannah Blackman. This is, of course, The Irishman. This is, of course, The Irishman with its yep. horrid, upsetting <laughs> double title card <laughs> at the end. I heard you paint houses The Irishman. <laughs> Up next, what movie was based off of this nonfiction book? The subtitle, Inside the White House <laughs> During the Cuban Missile Crisis. Hannah, I'm going to let you have this. You need Hannah, what are we looking this at this here is on a, the slide? This is a slide from the film 13 Days. And if this isn't 13 Days, I'll kill you. <laughs> so is that your guess, Hannah? Yeah, I guess so. Hannah, I searched for a second decoy for about an hour, but I couldn't <laughs> find it. This is, of course, 13 Days. Thank you. <laughs> great work. Great work. Thank you. Yeah. Totally redeemed. Yeah, Bruce Greenwood, really good as any president. Up next, this guy's book was adapted into a movie, his memoir. What was that? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> we don't recognize his face. The fact that Hannah doesn't recognize either is really validating for me. <laughs> <laughs> this is, of course, Nick Nolte in Tropic Thunder playing the author of the memoir, Tropic Thunder, which is made into the film, Tropic Thunder within mm. Tropic Thunder. That makes sense. Mm. Okay, well, that's complicated, isn't it? <laughs> it is a little complicated. Up next, what, you know, in the movie, but the, it was based on, and yeah. The Lost Moon. Should I just say Moonfall since it's the director? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is, of course, mo no, it's uh, not Moonfall, unfortunately. Devastating. Mm. Would have been mm. a fun twist for us all. <laughs> It would have been amazing to have know that there's a nonfiction book about like someday the moon might fall yeah, down. Right. The very plausible. It just fall down. Yeah. An extremely popular Oof. book made into a movie. The title of the book is the same as the title of the movie. The subtitle, The Lost Moon. 
All right. This is, of course, Apollo 13. Oh. Oh, wow. Mm, mm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Its subtitle is The Lost Moon. The book. I have a copy of that book. I don't think it has a subtitle. Oh, well, I hope I'm not wrong. Up next. Fact <laughs> <laughs> check in real time, Hannah. Uh, do you, do you want think... me to? No, no, no. Hold on. No, I'll be right back. No, go, go right ahead, back. Hannah. Oh, go my ahead. goodness. Wow, I started a real rift here. I'm so sorry. You put together this lovely quiz game for us. <laughs> We're maybe uh, 50 games into Authorized, and I've never been fact checked once. This is a terrifying new era. Okay, so this is this is my copy of Apollo 13, which does have the movie poster sort of on it. Yeah. And to be fair to my good friend Andrew Overby, it does say that it was previously titled Lost Moon. Wow. Wow. But not wow. previously titled The Lost Moon or previously oh, titled here. Apollo 13 colon The Lost Moon. So there's no subtitle. Yeah, and I misspelled wannabes. Like, how, let's give each other a little <laughs> grace. Up next, and I believe the final question, what nonfiction, what, sorry, what f- movie was based off of this nonfiction book? Team of Rivals. Hannah. Hannah Blackman. Lincoln. This is, of course, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln, <laughs> the book, Lincoln, Team of Rivals. Mm-hmm. Wow, good work, Hannah. Wow. You really swapped. That's great. <laughs> you you read that one too hannah that's right up your wheelhouse i actually haven't read it but i've owned a copy for about 10 years but it's wow. really big so i haven't read it hmm that's interesting like i'm to. sure that that book in particular has nothing to say about apathy or sort of allowing uh inertia to to, to carry you through you know you know i'm really busy reading movie novelizations <laughs> these days. i don't have time for like a 900 page historical book right now okay 